What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high-stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Happy to announce that today we're going to be talking to Ben Heath. Ben Heath plays high rollers, MTTs, mainly live. Ben Heath was actually one of the fastest risers. Five to six years it took him to reach the high roller level. So that's a very fast riser. And today he's agreed to come on our podcast in order to share his wisdom in the hope that you will learn something in order to make more progress in your poker career as well. Adam, anything that you're particularly curious for to learn about Ben? Yeah, well, he plays the super high rollers. Uh, these guys are a different breed. Generally, they have a different relationship with risk. They built their mindset in a different way where they're playing for houses and cars every tournament. And they're unaffected by the large money swings that come with that. See, so, yeah, I'm going to be intrigued to know what kind of mindsets, kind of routines or approaches he's went through to yeah, kind of build a mindset that's able to deal with the validity that comes with playing those super high rollers. Yeah, I think for a lot of us listening and for me as well, I would think it's first thing that will probably come in mind. It's a bit scary, right? What if you lose, right? Yeah, you can lose a lot. So yeah, they have a different association, I guess, with losing and taking risk in general that I'm very curious to um, yeah, to discover through this conversation. But before we start, I would like to give a big shout out to our sponsor, GTO Wizard, for sponsoring today's podcast. GTO Wizard has made studying poker accessible for everyone and in my opinion is one of the best ways if you're serious about improving your game. Next to having access to all GTO solutions for every spot and having the ability to upload your hand and have GTO Wizard analyze it for leaks, you will have access to weekly coaching sessions of various coaches, including me. I give a webinar there every month, so come check it out. We will educate you on the most important spots in order to start crushing the poker games, okay? If you want to sign up, go over to gtowizard.com slash mechanics and you get 10% off on your first month. That is gtowizard.com slash mechanics. But without further ado, let's start today's episode with Ben Heath. Welcome, Mr. Ben Heath. To the pot. Very excited for our conversation today. Hi, uh, yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on. You just got uh, back from the PCA in the Bahamas. I think uh, poker players are probably one of the few people that go to Bahamas, come back on tent, right? Which I guess is a, is a good sign because that meant you were spending a lot of time playing in the poker tournaments. How did it go for you? Uh, 
yeah, it was fine. I ended up down small in the end. Uh, still kind of recovering. Coming back this way is always tough with jet lag. Yeah, I, I can imagine uh, jet lag is a big issue. It's like eight hour time difference or something. Uh, it's actually, it's only six. So uh, not too bad, but I think just like the combination of it was 13 days in a row of playing. So you're kind of sleep deprived anyway. And then, you know, this is the tough way to come for me jet lag wise. So do you, like... be, be, before you go, do you already kind of get accustomed to the time schedule beforehand? Like, you know, oh, the tournaments are going to be between these times. I'm going to try to be at my peak. So before I go, I already kind of shift my, my sleeping schedule. Do you, do you do something like that? Uh, a little, yeah. I mean, this year I just went out three days early and going out that way is not too hard, especially because like you, like the weather's so nice there that you can get out in the morning and get in the sun. And I think that helps you adjust to the time zone a lot quicker than coming back this way and it being winter. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. So like just having, and I think it's the easier way to go that way to go, uh, that way anyway so three days was enough for me i felt fine by the time i was playing but yeah if i was going to show up the day before then i would adjust my sleep schedules at home it's interesting that you mentioned you ended up down a little bit because i i, I knew that you were going to pca and then i checked before we had the look of hand them up i saw three caches i was like okay great success second place uh but it's, it's so it's interesting like if obviously if you look at for example a hand them up of certain players you see okay all-time winnings i don't know how many millions uh but obviously it doesn't give how can i say like a true reflection of how it actually went do you sometimes or do you feel like players sometimes struggle with it looks like they made millions but maybe in the same time they were break even due to i don't know the biggest bing that they had they only had a part of their a piece of themselves uh i don't know if i would say struggle with it i know i've had times where people who aren't in poker assume that you have a lot more money than you do because if you google someone in poker one of the first thing that comes up is hand mob so someone might be like oh you've won 15 million when yeah you haven't i mean i think i cashed for like seven hundred thousand maybe in bahamas but you know there were 200ks there was the 250k and then i was in the 50ks four times and then 25k so i was in for around 700 yeah so, exactly so like... no, that's that, that's that's indeed I, I, yeah struggle was maybe not not the correct word but i remember i think it was i think i heard fader talk about this when he went on an insane run and then he felt like uh it, he he did, he couldn't complain right he was feeling a bit shit because he was down but to the outside was like what are you complaining about you went on the biggest heater of your life or something but he said yeah from the outside looking in it may seem like that but it was actually not the case yeah i mean i, I think that does happen a lot, especially at these, like these trips, these at the moment, uh, a lot of the high stakes games have become unlimited re-entry. So I think it was the same in, in Cyprus last year at Triton. I got, uh, I chopped a 50 K, um, I think for maybe like 500 K or something, but again, it's, there was, you know, multiple 25Ks, multiple, and then there was a 50K, I think two 50Ks, a 75K and a 100K, and they're all unlimited re-entry. So people see it like, oh, congrats, you chopped an event, you know, a good trip, 
but you could have been in for 800 and shot one for 500. Uh, and I think that's happening even more so these days with these unlimited re-entries because no one sees people. People might just be like, yeah. oh, you, you mean cash the 100K? And it's like, yeah, I was in for four though. So mean cashing for like 160 isn't it didn't make any to celebrate. Like, so it's not like the poker news reporter comes to you. What are you going to do with the money that you made? Like, sure. oh yeah, to be fair, you know, how much I actually made is maybe a little bit different. Uh, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure our listeners uh, will are aspiring to play high rollers in tropical destinations as well. Uh, I'm sure your story that we're going to cover today will, I hope, inspire and maybe we can teach some lessons to make it more likely for that to happen, right? That's kind of the goal we have with this podcast. You first got into touch with poker, I think, when you were 16. So that's, what, 14 years ago for you? I think you're 30 years old now. Uh, what attracted you towards the game and what made you take the game more serious the years to follow compared to like the guys that you started playing poker with? Uh, yeah, I can't remember exactly when I started. I think it was around 16. It was in like high school, college time. Um, I had always liked games. Like I played a bit of chess when I was younger, uh, a bunch of like online strategy games. Um, and I also kind of liked gambling when I was younger. Uh, not that I could do much, but like scratch cards or whatever always interested me. Um, so I think when some friends were playing, I wanted to try it out, but it would just be like, you know, we were 16, so we couldn't play online and there's a limit to how much you can go around someone's house with eight people and play. Uh, when it's you know your parents house so uh we didn't play that much it was maybe like once a month um and then when i went to university i was playing online then because i was 18 at the time and but didn't really have much time like i wanted to play more but i think my my university was like 27 hours a week of contact hours and then another 20 to 25 of self-study so again like, i didn't really have much time i would just play maybe like five to seven hours a week of sitting goes to make some money uh for just like university expenses ah, so you didn't need a job next to your university basically you could fund your expenses which you know if you're a student usually aren't that high you could you could pay for that through playing sitting goes online. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got a university loan, so I really didn't have much expenses in terms of like my accommodation and my tuition was covered by the loan. Um, and my parents helped me out as well. And then like, I, uh, so I had just like, if I wanted to spend extra, mm -hmm. um, you know I mean? When you're at university, if your accommodation and tuition is covered by the loan, there's really not much that, more. That's it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so when yeah, I, I just did. Yeah. So, yeah. Ahead. So I was I was just doing that, and uh, my university was quite like quite a few poker players uh, came out of my university, um, and it was like I asked, I spoke to my tutor about it you have like a private tutor who manages like eight people uh and 
he had known, I think he had had like another four people in the five years before me who had gone on to play poker after university. So it was actually like a little more common than I thought at the time. So it was quite easy to imagine doing it in the future. Hmm. Did, do you, did, did you know personally any of them or was it just like, Hey, so I've heard that through after uni people have, you know, pursued playing poker professionally. So I guess this is something you can actually do. It kind of opened your mind up for the possibilities that this was, this was actually a thing. Yeah. I didn't know them. I mean, I knew their, I was told their names at the time, but I didn't know them personally, but yeah, I mean, at the time we I was kind of being told in my degree that two common route the most common routes I think were going into banking or finance and going into teaching. Those were like the the two paths that were most often pursued. And then a few students and my tutor kind of made it clear to me that poker was an option as well where you know beforehand I kind of saw it as more of a hobby I knew there were professional players because when I was playing at 16 like we all knew there were professional players and would watch people on full tilt and stuff but I didn't it didn't feel like it was much of an option I didn't really see the route to get there uh so it definitely helped kind of at least put it in my head that that was an option um to, 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 like, try. To, to, to clarify for the people listening you studied mathematics it's not like every school would sort of say like yeah sure poker is a is a good career path but i can definitely see yeah. the association between mathematics was it uh the the movie 21 wasn't it also like uh mathematics students that went to that went with their professor professor to vegas to uh to make them a lot of money in blackjack yeah yeah okay so guys if you want a route towards poker or blackjack i guess mathematics school is 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 a great place to start i was curious like throughout this period when you started 16 and uh when you start to play a bit more serious sitting goes uh, throughout university when was like the first time that you realized that poker was actually a skill game and that you had very much control based on the strategies that you've implemented uh i mean i think i i always thought it was a skill game just because that's how I was introduced to it. I was just introduced to it as another strategy game. Uh, and, you know, from the very start, like I say, we saw people on full tilt and sponsored pros. And that was kind of instantly in my head that if there are pros, it's a skill game. Uh, which, you know, because you don't have like professional blackjack players that aren't cheating or like manipulating Something. No, yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I, I guess the question is more the amount of skill involved compared to luck. Like for me personally, for example, in the beginning, obviously I thought, okay, well, I'm in control. You know, I do these moves and then I started to pick up, oh, this is actually something I do. I would implement a strategy and would actually see it working. And then as I implemented more strategies and saw it actually, you know, the things were actually happening the way I wanted to. That's when I started to understand like, oh, wow, there's actually quite a lot of depth into this game in terms of skill wise. Yeah, okay. I, I think maybe that came for me after university because I still wasn't very good at university. I was just playing like some low stakes silingos that weren't very tough. And I was still, I think had like limited understanding and like intuitive ability at a lot of deeper parts of the game. 
and I think it was like not until I started playing full time that maybe I realized how how much control you do have or like how little luck can be involved in the long run once you really know what's going on. You also mentioned uh, you're playing strategy games. And in general, I think you mentioned that you're a very competitive person. I mean, you have to be, right? You play the high roller scene. I think probably the people that uh, that play those tournaments are probably some of the most competitive people in poker. Um, how does competing at the highest level make you feel? And where did you develop this um, this relationship with being very competitive? That uh, I think I was just always naturally like that. I remember when I was when I was young, whether it was with other people or myself. Like if I played a game on my own, I would kind of uh, get semi obsessed with it until I'd got you know until I completed the game. Uh, so I don't know whether that is. So, you know, I don't have very clear memories of when I was like one to 10. So I don't know if it's something that came from something or whether I just was naturally like that. But for the memories I do have, I was just always like that with games. Like if I played a game, mm -hmm. I wanted to play it all the time and be very good at it. And if I didn't like it enough to do that, I didn't really want to play it much. Mm. Uh, like I would still play, you know, I would play like, monopoly with friends and stuff and you know i'm not super competitive at those because i'm not trying to be and it doesn't really bother me if i lose at something i'm not trying it but yeah did, did um, i was curious does this competitiveness sometimes get in the way you play a fun game with friends family uh you maybe take it a little bit too competitive uh yeah i don't actually find that too much i think that like if i'm not if it's just a game for fun and I'm not trying to learn the game and improve at it, then I don't really mind if I lose as much. Uh, I'm still somewhat competitive. I think like most people are, you want to win rather than lose a lot, but it doesn't bother me like poker does. Yeah, you cannot just turn off the analytical part of your brain, right? Let's say you go play a game and you play with people who are just, you know, they play games for fun, but you immediately see sort of, you have an overview, okay, this is probably the correct strategy. You implement this strategy and then yeah. you win. It's like, you, you cannot just say, okay, I'm just gonna sort of relax, enjoy and not play the correct strategy. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's really weird. Yeah, I definitely have that. Uh, that, that. That actually makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that you said, uh, not only the, the competitive nature in terms of competing versus other players, but you also said you were very interested in a game where you're just competing against yourself. Uh, yeah, I guess competing against myself in terms of, I used to play, I think it was like Rome Total War. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're not playing against any, you can play against other people, I think, but there's also just a setting where you just play against the computer and everything's preset based on the difficulty level you choose. And then you... So yeah, you're, you're playing against yourself in the way of you're trying to improve on your past performance. Is there a difference in terms of how you handle loss compared to if you would lose against a computer or if you would lose to a fellow human being? Do you take it a bit more personal? Uh, it's a good 
question. I mean, I think most, a lot of the games that I played, like if you're playing, yeah, I mean, I think I would take it slightly worse against humans if it's in person, maybe, because you just have that thing of, like, it feels a bit closer. But a lot of the games I played, even against people, it's like, like now if I play chess online or something, it's not completely clear that you're playing it someone else, not a computer, because it's like they're behind a computer screen. So in those things, then like in those online games, it would be similar because whether you're playing against the computer or a person, it's not that obvious who's controlling it. And it's more like if you make a mistake, it's annoying and it doesn't really matter whether you made it against a computer or a person. Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense. I can relate to that. I, I, we used to play a lot of FIFA when I was younger. And there's definitely a big difference in terms of if I playing against a computer or playing against a friend who's sitting next to me who would also rub it into my face if I would lose or if I sure. would make a mistake or if I would make a try to make a play that feels like seriously you, you try to make that play how bad are you you know you get you you you, you get you get very triggered um I'm curious also like a mathematics degree how did that help you in your poker career how how did you apply the things that you learned through uni how did you apply that to poker uh i think i mean a lot of a lot of what you do at university isn't that applicable in for in like everyday poker because it's a lot of uh i think like by my third year i was doing a lot of analysis and group theory and those are just not things you need like most of the time when you're playing poker, it can just be simple, like adding or, or like working out products. Uh, I think it was helpful in some extent, like the, my degree was a lot of, uh, you have to do a lot of proofs. So it's a lot of like being, being given a theory and having to prove it from like, from the ground up and it might just be like a two or three page proof. And I remember the first year I would struggle a lot with missing something. So you have to kind of, a lot of things would need separating. So it's like you prove it for real numbers, you prove it for imaginary numbers and you prove it for zero in that. And then like those three together is the entire proof. And my first year when I hadn't really had much experience with that in college, it was very easy to miss something just like suddenly realize at the end that the method you're using doesn't work for the zero case. Mm. And I think that kind of mindset is helpful in poker of while going into the, to like each micro thing, keeping an idea of the macro picture and making sure that like your logic lines up for every part. Um, mm. Cause I think that's like quite a common mistake in poker is, zeroing in on something and being like whether it's theory or like a live read like oh you know this doesn't really make sense and then you completely forget something else like a previous street or some other part of information that overrides that uh so i think that was quite helpful in terms of thought process and like decision making um and then i think some stuff as well just you know we did a lot of work on probabilities and I remember being told some stuff about how bad the human brain is at interpreting or like 
our intuition isn't built to estimate well, like uh, tail cases of probabilities. Um, and I think some stuff like that is quite helpful for dealing with downswings or upswings. Um, and yeah, I guess just other other parts of poker. So I think there was a lot of somewhat relevant stuff, but it's not like I'm sitting and using the like course that I did in university to solve poker stuff. No, uh, yeah, I, I, I can imagine, but it does indeed sound like uh, especially in your thought process. And I also indeed in understanding the variance, understanding the variance of numbers, uh, stuff like that, I think has definitely benefited you. I usually say when people people ask like, oh yeah, math, you have to be very good at math. I'm personally very, very, very bad at math. So I always say, listen, math is a bit overrated, but you would make the argument, is, is math and poker a bit overrated or am I missing something? Because you obviously look at it maybe from a way more mathematical approach, whereas I look at things way more, maybe intuitively I am actually good at math, uh, but not rationally or from a university. If you put me in a mathematics university, I would suck very badly. But maybe the math that is required in poker intuitively, I do well. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite hard for me to say, I guess, whether it's overrated or not. Like, I'm not actually sure. Look, I, I know most people view it like you need to be good at maths but i think a lot of it is like working out polyps so i don't think you need to be incredible at maths um i think there and also is... like polyps at some point or at least maybe i'm talking from uh this is purely personally like i'm not sitting at the table actively working out polyps it it goes way more intuitively i know approximately how much outs sure. i have it's not like i'm counting right yeah uh yeah, I mean, I think there's some more in-depth stuff like that that it helps to be quick at. Um, but, Would you yeah, say MTTs I mean, also requires more mathematics than cash games? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think cash games, especially if you're just playing like 100 big Zoom online or something, is so repetitive that a lot of the decisions are, you know, once you've learned them, it's not that hard because people follow similar sizing schemes. So it's just like you're facing like B33, B70 or B150 a lot. And like, and then you're like, you have a similar stack <laughs> of most times as well. Um, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because I sometimes forget the odds in four bet pots. So maybe that makes sense because it's less common. The SPR is very shallow. The bets are very small. And then I yeah. sometimes overfold because like the amount that you have to defend in a four bet pot versus all these like twenty percent, twenty percent type of bets is is very big. But maybe there, the fact that I'm not consciously working out the math is actually costing me. Whereas in tournaments, you probably have more of these situations where your math is constantly being activated. Yeah, I mean, I think with the changing stacks, that does happen a lot in tournaments because you can be playing you're often playing variable stack sizes. So it's like someone opens off 30 and you have a hundred with the other guy. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it is a lot more active, I think, in your thinking in terms of when you're doing like pre-flop sizes or flop sizes, there's two different stacks involved. So you do have to be a lot more aware of what's going on. And it's not as kind of routine as a hundred bigs cash where everything's the same, like in a hundred bigs cash, you know, you see a lot of people online that just have their 
open sizes for anything that's not the button. They're open size for the button. And then they just have like in position format and out position format. And those stay like relatively similar. Uh, so even in format pots where you're not in them as much, you're still probably just facing the same sizes a lot. Yeah, yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. When I play a tournament, it's never online. It's only live, which is happens on occasion. But that's actually something that, like my brain is being put to the test. I have to calculate every time. Also, I have to calculate how much chips people have. People have various chips. Yeah. It's so tiring for my brain personally. I get very confused quite easily. I The amount of times that I've just made blunders based on the fact that I thought I had more or less, someone else had more or less. Oh, this happens to me so often. Uh, but hey, that's why I'm, I guess, a, a fun player in live tournaments. Um, you mentioned the r- role models, right? You had some role models in terms of other students that studied mathematics that went into poker. You also saw that it was possible as a profession because you saw guys gambling, high stakes and full tilt. Any uh, any, any um, role model that really stood out back then in the full tilt games that you were like, oh, I want to be like him. I, we had someone on the pod mention Durr. And then he would try to play like Durr, and it cost him a lot of money. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't remember specifically having any one person. I know that, like, as I progressed through university, I just was had it more in my mind that that would be a good option. Uh, like, especially, I, I, you know, I went to some interviews with banks and like didn't really feel like that was what I wanted to do. So I think both things were like, I was enjoying Pokemon and the other options were looking less attractive. So as a concept, I was had like, yeah, no specific role model. I just was like, oh, the people who are pros, I would like to be a pro, but not one person. Um, I think if anything, like, there was, uh, I think it was Rupert Elder, I think that was his name. Uh, and he, he graduated a few years before me uh, and played poker pretty high stakes for a while. And then I think he moved on to other stuff. Um, and if anything, I, I was more, I messaged him like after university, just asking for any advice on getting started. And if anything, it was people like that that I looked up to a bit more just because it was a lot more relatable. Like you see Durr and it's just it's like, more I, tangible. I, I, I don't really know anything about his story. Just hearing someone that had my same tutor as me and at the same university and did a very similar course to me three years before and was now playing high stakes. It's like a lot more relatable. What were your expectations starting out, right? You said it's a good option. What made poker a good option? Did you see the... The financial side or did you see the competitive side did you just really like the game like you went to banks you thought okay those were not great options what made poker a good option uh i mean i think the main thing was that it didn't really feel like a job so you know people are like oh these are the three jobs you can go for and to me two of them really felt like a job where it's like something i don't really want to do but they give you money for doing it Mm. and then the third option was like or you can play the game that you're already obsessed with and kind of addicted to and want to do all the time anyway and then we'll like also maybe give you money for that if you're good at it so i was like okay well i'm off being offered 
you know, to pursue three jobs and one doesn't really sound like a job to me. So I think that was the main attractive thing of, you know, I also liked having, even at university at the time, it was very high hours that were needed for the course, but you still have some sort of time freedom. Like I got to choose those hours. Uh, and if I didn't want to go to a lecture, I could just not go. And there was no repercussions for that. You just not go, you get the notes of a friend and it's fine. So, uh, you know, and the other things I was looking into would definitely take that away. And I really liked having freedom of time and didn't really want to go into. I know that like, I had friends that did end up going into banking straight after university. And I know like the first few years, especially are really demanding. Um, so I think poker just offered quite a something different and something that I really wanted to do so I felt like I could always fall back and do the other things which may or not, not have been true I know that actually it's much harder to get certain jobs if you take you know a few years after university they want people just coming out of university but uh at the time I just felt you know if this goes wrong I can do something else but it's worth giving it a go it makes sense take the job that doesn't feel like a job right yeah Makes a lot of sense, uh, Adam. Uh, in the in the food tilt days, did you have any of the guys that you looked up to that were like, "Oh, I'm gonna be like that guy," or was it more like Ben, someone close in your environment, in your environment that kind of walked a similar path than you that made it a bit more tangible and realistic? I still love watching the live high stakes poker games with Dwan, Ivy, Antonius. But like Ben says, like there was an element of it where it just didn't feel realistic. Like for myself, I mean, it was entertainment. I was like, wow, these guys are playing for hundreds of thousands, millions. And that's got me interested in the game as a curiosity. But the the removal factor from myself and them just seemed like so big to grasp that I didn't, I was a fan of the game rather than anything. But in terms of enjoying poker, I loved it. I watched probably every season of high stakes poker. Me and my friends used to watch it and play home games um, at university. So that definitely got me interested in the game and the strategic side of it. Uh, but yeah, it took a lot longer to get like kind of role models that were more relatable who I could yeah, learn from more directly. Um, so yeah, Ben, for yourself, I'm curious to know uh, when you've graduated from university. So it sounds like you were almost itching to play more poker during uh, university, but didn't quite get around to it because of the study demands when you've graduated obviously you mentioned the three options were teaching and finance and then the third one kind of being poker when you decided you were going to go down the poker path how did you approach that did you decide you're going to give yourself x amount of time to go all in with it was it more of a casual thing talk us through like how uh, the initial steps into you becoming a pro poker player began yeah i mean i think after i think i left university in 2014 and I spoke to my parents about it and they were supportive and we kind of all agreed that there should be some sort of time limit because it is still, a, you know, it's a game, which games themselves can be addictive when there's no gambling involved. And then it's gambling, which is very addictive. So you have two things that like, can have a lot of bias and it's very easy to convince yourself that you're good or that it's going well when it's not. So we kind of agreed that I would do it for two years. And I think the aim was 
to be not necessarily have made but be on track if because i was like think about playing cash games or sitting goes or something with a bit less variance than i do now or a lot less variance uh the aim was to be on track to be making thirty thousand dollars a year by that by the end of that second year and if i wasn't i would go and do something else and if i was then i could continue uh so kind of started out with that with yeah with that process in mind um and yeah just started kind of playing more straight away well i, I took i had the summer after university uh where i took like some time off and just played for fun but then after that started trying to play a bit more I love this. I love you graduated university and you sit down with your parents and have a very strategic career path and poker is a part of that for two years. I can picture or just imagine myself trying this. I would get kind of laughed out of the living room very quickly and told to apply for jobs that same night. But yeah, I really like how you're, first of all, you've talked about the problems, like the gambling aspect, the addictive aspect, and then you've got clear metrics of let's give this a go. I think anytime you take a new path, it's an experiment. And I really like that your parents supported this because I know a lot of people listening will the parents won't understand. I know my parents to this day still don't understand how poker works, but it's good that your parents give you kind of some room and flexibility to go after a pursuit that you were clearly interested in. So in terms of these metrics, so you're basically working towards hopefully being on, on track to make 30,000 by the end of your second year. Were your parents checking in with you throughout that process? And how did you take off on that pursuit? What were kind of the initial kind of strategies to try and make that money? Uh, I mean, they they weren't checking in in terms of you know, I didn't have to report to them. They were checking in just because I have a close relationship with my parents. So I was talking to them about it. Uh, I think in terms of them being supportive, yeah, I was very lucky because I know a lot of friends whose parents were either completely apathetic or in some cases, the complete opposite of supportive, you know, up to some people's parents almost trying to forbid it. So... I was lucky with that, but my parents kind of said, you know, you, uh, I did my degree. I focused on that and I got good grades in it at a tough degree at a tough university. And they said, you know, you've, you've done that. And now you're 21. It's not really our place anymore to have any say in that. Like they recommended university because they thought it was a good idea. And when, you know, you have to choose when you're 17, so you're still not fully an adult and it makes sense i think to have a lot of your parents input at that point and listen to people's advice once you've done that and you're 21 they're like you know you have this degree you can do whatever you want with it and we'll support that but you're an adult now we can't it's not our place to tell you that we think a different job is better um you know up until the point where they said, if you do it for two years and you make no money or lose money, then again, we can't make you do anything, but we would suggest that maybe this isn't the way to go. Uh, in terms of how I started, I guess, yeah, it was pretty slow at start, at start. I was just playing the same games I had at university and slightly higher uh, and doing like fine, not amazing. Um, and then got quite lucky, I think. So I joined a Skype group that was uh, from my university of like people who were in the same position, like either just graduated or 
at the university or coming to the university. And Charlie Carroll was in it. Um, and he, he just won the Sunday Million, I think. And he was about to go to the university. So I think after a year off, so he was like, he was, I think he's two years younger than me. Um, and he said, I'm going to Amsterdam to celebrate this. Anybody in this group who wants to come, you're welcome to come. And at the time, uh, I was just playing poker and not really doing anything. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go meet some poker people. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we got on very well there and ended up renting like a flat for six months in London about three weeks after that trip. And, you know, he was already doing quite well. He was already playing like five, 10 online and had just won the Sunday million. So that's where things started improving a lot. And I was like quite lucky to find someone who was naturally more intuitive at it than me. I think now, and even then, like I understood poker well when someone explained some things to me, but there were things I was definitely getting stuck at on my own. Um, and even now, I, I find it a lot easier now with the solvers, like the solver era for me is just a place that makes more sense to how my brain thinks about the game. At the time, there was a lot more kind of tuition and intuition and like leveling. And I was less good at that, I think. So things started improving a lot faster when I had uh, Charlie helping with, uh, yeah, with how I played. Yeah. How long were you living with Charlie? And what were some of the kind of progressions you made in that time span? Um, we lived in... I don't remember exactly the timeline but we rented that flat in london for six months which i think was would have been about like nine months after i left university and then i can't remember maybe i went home for a couple of months and then we rented a flat in cambridge after that for six months but ended up giving that one up because i think we rented it for six months and we're in the flat for about five weeks because we started traveling to some of the live stuff so we realized that you know there wasn't much point in paying for this place we were never at uh yeah i think it's hard to say with like progress at the time because it was a lot of ups and downs where you know i, I was playing five cent ten cent zoom maybe at the time when i met charlie and by the end of the six months i was like shot taking 102 like uh sorry one two zoom so 200 an hour but I'm not sure even when I look back, I never really stopped at a stake to see whether I was like winning. And like, I didn't ever do a six months of, oh, I'm going to grind this stake and just make money. Uh, Charlie was very aggressive with moving up and I just did the same. So it was kind of whenever I have 20 buy-ins for the next stake, I move up. And then if I lose two or three, I move back down. So it's hard to say even now, like, you know, I was shot taking 200, but it could have just been a good run. I'm not sure like which stake I should have actually been at. Um, but 
yeah at the time I think we both enjoyed doing that because it felt it's almost like a free roll at that time where I'm just like okay I have two years to try this and we're having fun playing so we just like win some money lose some money and just like keep playing and trying to get better but it was basically what we did I think for those six months it was just a mix of playing online uh online zoom online tournaments and then we rented a flat near the grosvenor like the vic the vic in london so uh, obviously because like when you're playing low, small stake zoom you can play like 10 cent 25 cent zoom but you can beat one three live so it's like a pretty good way to make some money as well to play the live cash games so uh yeah so i guess progress wise i don't know about stakes i would say i was probably beating 100 and out at the end of the six months um but it was more just kind of learning how to think about the game more um yeah yeah at this stage it sounds like you've got very aggressive bankroll management you're enjoying the game you're learning and you're basically just going as high as you can in a short span of time to uh, yeah, see where your kind of level is without really stopping to check what your current win rate is or exactly where you should be. In terms of like playing lives, it sounds like around this time, living, move, moving to close to a casino, you potentially started playing more live around that time. I think you mentioned that you were only in your apartment or flat for five weeks of the six months. So tell me if you're like when you started transitioning to live and how were you sort of uh, judging which games were most profitable in terms of your online grind compared to the live sessions you were playing? Uh, I'm not sure about yeah again like the exact timelines I'm not sure I guess I could check Hendon or something I know that uh, the first few because I was still playing a lot smaller than Charlie the first few trips we went on was just Charlie winning satellites to EBTs and then me just like going along and sharing the room and playing some of the smaller stake stuff uh I can't vouch for him, but for me, and I think for both of us, it wasn't quite as like calculated as now. Like now when I look at stuff, I'm trying to work out how much I make per hour and day on the trips, like which are the best trips to go to. If I only want to travel four or five months a year, which ones I should skip. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a combination of what works best for my personal life and then which ones I earn more and, you know, how much I'm willing to give up. Uh, at the time, I honestly think it was a lot more just kind of fun, you know, because it's still, like I said, it didn't really feel like a job. So it was just like, oh, we play online. When we feel like we've been in the house for too many days in a row, we go and play live. When one of us wins a package to an EBT, we going like you know i think charlie won the first one to san remo and it wasn't really like oh is this more profitable than staying here it was just like oh we can go to italy and play poker where we've like never traveled for poker before that sounds great uh it wasn't really like is my hourly higher there than here uh it was just like let's go and have a holiday in italy with some poker involved 
Yeah, just um, going with the floor, enjoying the experience of playing poker, being able to travel, and almost like seeing where it leads you. There's no like clear kind of path at that stage. It's just enjoyment-based, curiosity, and wherever the satellites would take you, so to speak, would be the yeah. next kind of livestock. So you just got back from the PCA very recently, but there was a time early in your career where you ended up almost going broke and losing most of your role in the Bahamas. So talk us through, first of all, how you ended up there early in your career and what kind of unfolded for you to uh, go on a bit of a downswing when you're there. Uh, I think it was the same thing. I think Charlie won a package and I went uh, with him and I can't remember the exact timing, but I had like 20K, I think. And obviously there were just expenses, uh, you know, like flights there aren't cheap. Uh, food there is not cheap. And then just like the online stuff, we're just like very aggressive with bankroll stuff. So I was entering tournaments sometimes and like keeping pieces of myself where I maybe had 15 buy-ins for that level when it's like an 800 person tournament. Uh, because we kind of just had the thing of, I was making money in like live cash in London and was making money online in cash and was just like, oh, I'll just enter this tournament with 15 buy-ins. If I win, great, that speeds things up and I have more money. If I lose, I'll just go back to what I was doing at home, which I'm enjoying. So like, it didn't really matter that much to me. So I think it basically was just that. I just went, played a bunch of tournaments I wasn't rolled for, lost them all and came back with little to no money. And then just went, yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing really changed. Like just went back to playing the same games online, but with less money. Uh, at, the time, at the time it didn't matter. It was just like, there wasn't much i i think at, i think at this point i was back to living with my parents like we'd given up the flat in cambridge and i went back to my parents house which was like lucky that they had a place that i could stay so you know took the pressure off what a lot of people would have of rent issues so my living expenses were like very low and yeah i was like lucky enough to be in a situation where i could do that and just go and lose my role and then come and know I or not know but hope I could make it back in softer games I think that's the nice thing about poker is once you get to a certain level there are games you can just move down to and make a lot of money especially if you're at a time like that where you're willing to just play 60 hours a week you know if you're if you're at the lowest stakes that's not true but if you're at 100 or 200 now you can move down to one below play 60 hours a week and make decent money um so i think that took a lot of the pressure off and it was still just a learning thing and you know with the opportunity to bank something yeah i think it's very interesting that you had this very relaxed relationship with your role obviously like you said you're young you can build it back you had online games which you could grind and make good profits at the same time, I'm guessing you'd put a decent amount of work into building your role to 20K. And it's probably not nice to go to a nice uh, trip to the Bahamas and come back with most of your role gone. It takes quite a bit of humbleness to just 
go about the grinding, not not worry about it and just get on with rebuilding your role. So in terms of like you, you mentioned in the questionnaire we sent you uh, that you're a little bit of a, a gambler at heart. We can see like with your bankroll management, you've been like quite aggressive at shot taking. What are some of the ways you feel like being aggressive with your bankroll has helped you? I'm guessing like moving up stakes in one of them. Has there been any times where your aggressive bankroll management or risk taking overall has come back to bite you, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was probably slightly less aggressive at the start, but Charlie was very aggressive and we were kind of learning poker together me from like he was teaching me a lot and then we were going on these trips together and I was just doing the same as him in terms of just being that aggressive uh I think I'm almost more aggressive in gambling outside of poker in terms of investments I am kind of more willing to fire big on than poker sometimes uh, especially now, maybe just because I know so much, I, I know more about poker now and know how it can go. Um, I think I don't know if I ever had any really bad experiences with with taking too much. I mean, overall, I would say it was much more of a positive than a negative in the end. Not endorsing or saying like I recommend it for everyone, just in my personal experience in hindsight i think it was positive because things ended well and i think it was a very quick way to learn certain things like if you want to play the high stakes games you have to be okay with losing money because even if you're not uh like now if when i play the 250ks it's not all my money like if i lose i don't lose 250k of my own money but you're still losing 250k of yours and someone else's money and it's like a house and you have to be detached a certain extent from losing money. Otherwise you just couldn't perform well in those games. And I think having that very swingy start where I lost all of my money multiple times helped develop that quite quickly, which I think you need to play the highest stakes. Uh, I think maybe the only time that I really felt it a bit too much was in Barcelona one year when I had a hundred K at this point, and I think I lost 50 K in the first five days, uh, where I think I lost 35 K in the 50 K tournament with like myself and swaps where I just swapped with two people and we all fired three times. So even though like I only had, you know, 15% of myself and seven and a half percent of them or something, but we all just fired multiple times and all got crushed. And, you know, it's looking back, it's questionable whether I should have even been playing those stakes at that time. And then I lost the main event and a side event and was just like, wait, I had 100K, now I have 50 five days later and I still have six days of poker left to play. Uh, that was, I think, the only time where I felt a little, like, physically worried about losing a lot. I think at the beginning... You know, I got to like five or six K before and lost it all. I got to 20 K and lost it all. But I'd always been like, oh, that's not really enough money to uh, play the games I want to. So at some point I need to build it any more anyway. So I might as well take a shot and then see. But 100 K was enough to do a lot of things with in poker and outside of poker. 
and losing half of it and knowing that the rest might be lost in the next five days was not that fun. Mm. Again, so in, in, in hindsight, I think it was like a good thing because you need to learn that. You, you need to like learn where the limit is to know where you can push it and where you can't. Yeah. So two follow-up questions from that Barcelona period. What were some of the things you did to overcome that kind of that feeling you had when you lost 50k? And obviously it led some I'm guessing some soul searching to do of what am I doing here, potentially losing all my role. And then how did that change your behaviors going forward? Did it leave, did you have to uh, lower your kind of risk exposure in the short term or mid-term? Yeah, so there were some things that changed as a result of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I had any of the like, what am I doing here or why am I playing? It was kind of obvious to me what had happened because most of the loss was from a 50k, whereas like, oh, I might not even be winning in it. If I am, it's like two or three percent because I'm one of the, I was like still shot taking those stakes. I'm like, best case, I'm not, I'm one of the worst regs in the game and I'll be making very low return. Why have I lost 35k chasing 2% returns when there's like soft 2.5 and soft 1Ks? So it changed my approach slightly in terms of just realizing, you know, that even though I want to take higher stakes and was used to doing that online, that those were really high stakes and you can just get crushed for a lot of money. Not like, you know, playing 200 zoom and moving up to 500 zoom. You can just kind of quit after two buy-ins and you just lost... 1k this was kind of the first time where i was like oh I, I could actually just go and lose my whole 100k if i'm just like being an idiot chasing these really low returns so i, I think it changed my approach slightly in terms of if i wanted to shot take stuff uh not swap a bunch if i because i you know i would be short taking up for like experience and thinking i was winning so but it still wasn't because I couldn't swap with the best people in the games either. It's like, I wasn't, uh, I don't think it was the best place to get a good return on my money. And I didn't need to just fire that much into it. If I wanted a shot take, I could just take a small part of my piece of myself and sell. But also just stop shot taking those things quite as much at the time. Um, and then, yeah, just like played just carried on playing, you know, the softer stuff, just save my money for the mains where I think I was making decent ROI and live cash, which was like, at the time, still just very soft on the EPTs then. Um, so yeah, like changed my approach slightly in that, but I don't think I ever had like, you know, should I be playing poker? I was really aware that I thought I should be playing poker, just not that poker at that time. Yeah, it's almost like putting your hand at a hot stove. You know, burns. You don't need any more lessons from that. It's like that. That was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. And yeah, it sounds like it helped you get your risk-taking nature into more of a almost like creative system safety rails around it and being a bit more realistic with how much risk you can take on in the short term. That's not reckless. It's almost like that risk-taking avenue. You almost need to balance it with something so it doesn't go over the edge. It sounds like this experience helped you to find. Oh wait, wait a second. I don't need to take these super high variants. Uh, low low EV spots when there's other spots available and yeah maybe don't risk all my role in one uh, kind of trip so yeah it sounds like it created a a little bit of a, a balancer for you so I'm yeah. interested to know you mentioned you were like playing the high role as being detached from results so I'm curious to know how someone becomes detached from results so uh, let's say you're playing a 50k in, in, back in those days or you played a 250k in, these days 
how does one begin to remove their mind from thinking about the monetary value? All right, because it's very, I know for yourself, you probably, it's probably very easy to, to think, oh yeah, just detach from results. But from listeners watching, they'll be like, well, if I sat down in a 50K buy, and regardless if it's my money or someone else's or a mix of both, there's a lot of money on the line. That's really hard for the mind not to gravitate towards that. So for yourself, were you naturally quite good at separating the strategy game from the, the financial buy-in? Or was there some kind of, is there anything you do to uh, allow yourself to uh, not be attached to the monetary values of the, the big high rollers you play? I mean, I, I think at the beginning, I actually wasn't good at it. I, I don't really know what the baseline is or what the average person has with respect to that. But I was... I remember being not good at Zoom. I remember always like playing four tables of Zoom and just kind of like losing a three bed pot and checking my balance, like, you know, like seeing how the session's going all the time when I would never do that now and it shouldn't matter. Uh, I think, I think a lot of it for me was just experience. Just, it just happens so much that you just kind of gradually get used to it. Like, you know, when I was first playing five cents, 10 cents Zoom, if I lost $10, I would be really annoyed. But then like when you're playing 100 and now losing $10 doesn't annoy you anymore. And I think that just like happens naturally throughout the stakes. And then once you've been at a certain stake for long enough, you just know it. That's how it works. Um, with the bigger stuff, I think playing it a lot helps um you're generally around a lot of people who also view it the same way it's just like you're playing tough people and losing is part of it and you know everyone or most people treat it like that and then for me like selling action when i do for the big games having people who also treat it like that as investors because there are some investors that I sold to in the past who actually, I, I mean, I've had some bad experiences, but not as many, but I've had friends who have like played a bad hand in games and then been asked for the money back from the investors because, and it was usually from like people they didn't know that well, people selling on Facebook or, you know, people who aren't like poker pros themselves maybe. And people are like, Oh, I invested in you because I thought you were good, but you like, <laughs> you played this like bad hand in my view can I have my money back? Because I was like, I didn't want to invest in you if you play like that. Uh, and I think obviously like that's the, the extreme, but the other extreme is having people who really don't care and who are just like, I think you're good at poker. That doesn't mean you won't make mistakes and you can either lose because of luck or you can lose because you made a mistake. And that's just how poker is. And I don't care. So like, here's the money and I'm never going to talk to you about it again. Um, so I think for the like higher stakes that helps as well, because that really takes the pressure off where you don't feel like, oh, if I lose, I'm going to have to, you know, explain to this person why I lost or explain to this person that like, sorry, but you know, I don't have the money for you. And, you know, I'm sorry if that's a big deal for you. Yes, I got a few things there from that. One was the exposure itself, playing the games more frequently, almost like building a tolerance for playing certain games, all of a sudden it becomes the norm, so to speak. Obviously, I'm guessing some of the high rollers and the super high rollers, it's hard to build enough of a sample at some of those stakes to uh, kind of get that feeling. But over time, like exposing yourself to the same stimulus in terms of a buy-in, over time you get used to it. It becomes like normalized, so to speak. And the second thing you mentioned was 
that kind of investor's mindset where most of the people you're around are, are similar in terms of their, they treat each buying as an investment. And then you've got other people buying action who are also uh, investing in um, your career or your, your tournaments. And again, they, they treat it like a, yeah, an investment sort of mindset. So uh, they know the risk involved and they're not expecting like returns. So you've got this around other people who are also uh, yeah similar minded. And then you've got other people from the outside who might be investing who are uh, basically uh, allowing you to uh, just play poker without the pressure. I'm interested to know if you have a different scorecards that you keep track of. Because I'm thinking if someone's trying to detach themselves from results, it's quite hard when the results are very big. So for example, let's say you're only going to play a handful of 100Ks or 250Ks in a year. And let's say you were to lose all those or go on bad variants in those games. If the scorecard was just financial, there's a very good chance that you could be yeah, losing that year, so to speak. So I'm wondering for yourself, like when you do play a the higher buyings like overall when you play in your career, do you have a different scorecard? Something that you judge your performance based on, which isn't um, a monetary metric or a results metric? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is hard to not have the money thing at all because that is, you know, the kind of first thing you see in your results. And if you just never won, you would have to stop playing. Um, other than that, I mean, you, and you do have to look at that because there are certain things where, you know, you need to know which games you're playing, what you think your ROI is and how many games you're playing and what your wins and losses are because there is a certain point where maybe you're, like, losing so much over a certain amount of games that you're likely just not winning in those. So you do, you know, you can't just say, like, the aim is to be detached from money in the sense that, emotionally you don't want to be thinking about the money when you're playing but you can't detach and just never look at it because that is what tells you whether you're winning or not um the other things i think is just i kind of generally have a feel maybe for how i'm playing and if i'm getting better in terms of when you review just like how many big mistakes you make um and then i guess people you play with as well like you know people that you can swap with maybe change uh, people who will invest in you, the markup you're offered for the games or like how easy it is to sell. You know, I had times in the past where when I was first playing high rollers and you're like, I wanted to sell action and you're selling like 5% of the time to some people who maybe know you or maybe just want like a little sweat, even if they don't know much about your poke game. And then I've had, you know, and it was like hard where you're kind of thinking, okay, I want to keep 20% of myself. And I've now sold 12 people between one and 10%. And that's like quite tough. So, you you know, maybe sometimes you didn't sell enough and you couldn't play. And then I've had times where once I had got a lot better, I wanted to play 100K and have been offered like 350% of the action and you're like then having to choose who you sell it to. Uh, and some of the people that I sell to are like also players. So I think there are like various things like that in how I think I'm playing and how other people think I'm playing. That is quite a good metric to go off, even though it's, I mean, maybe metrics the wrong word. It's not like measurable in any sense. Um, but yeah, I think just like feeling like I'm improving um, is how I judge most of my kind of how I feel about my poker progress.
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's quite a lot of data points that you're using there rather than just results. Like I said, to some degree, the results are always the end goal of what matters and you can't switch off from that from a cognitive perspective, but the emotional side, I think is a more important variable. How do you almost like keep confidence during bad patches when results are not going your way? So you have a lot of different data points, whether it's how you feel about the games, it's other people around you having confidence in your game, be able to sell action to, to people who have yeah, who trust your game. So I think those things help to build confidence. Let's say um, you went in a bad run and let's say uh, you didn't have those data points to look back on. Let's say you played a bad tournament, so to speak, or there was lots of mistakes and the money values were going in the hole, so to speak, or you had a diamond swing. How do you feel like you would deal with that emotionally? Is there anything, anything you would go to or if you were a bit worried about your performance in some of the higher games, is there anything you would do to kind of get yourself out of that situation? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think I think it was 2018 was very bad for me in terms of money. And at the end of the year, I just didn't think I was playing well. I was like playing the high stakes more regularly and kind of, it's hard to say because I haven't been playing them as much, so I was still like more attached to the results. But I felt like maybe I shouldn't be playing those games, or wasn't as good as I thought I was, wasn't as high up in the games I thought, and could feel that like I lost a lot of money and played some hands where I was like, okay, this wasn't like when I reviewed them, it was like this is too many mistakes compared to I think what other people are doing in those games. Uh, so I just took three months off playing and just studied six days a week at home and just didn't go on any live stops. I think I did like February, March, April of that year. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I must be getting the dates wrong or maybe, but uh, I could check on Hendo maybe, but um, that was before Vegas 2019. So yeah, it, it would have been a few months at the start of that year. Um, and I, I think that like that is, for me, all I can really do in those situations. Emotionally, it's nice to give yourself a break because losing and feeling like you're making mistakes is kind of stressful to lose money. And then for me, it's more stressful than the money to be making mistakes and stuff because I'm just competitive and didn't want to be not playing well. So it's nice to give your brain a reset because i think there's just a set, only a certain amount of that stress you can take before you just burn out emotionally and then you know at the end of the day if you're not playing well or you think you're not a big enough winner in your games to make it worth it like the time and the gambling the only like long-term solution is get better so I was just like, either I can keep playing and postponing the getting better or do it really slowly and probably have more pain, or I can just go away, hopefully turn my like 2% ROI into 6% or something, and then come back when it's six, rather than trying to grind it from like two to six whilst playing. Uh, so and I think for me, like if I had the same now, that's, I would just do the same stuff. I mean, in between now if i have a trip that i don't think i play that well on i just go home and study more hours than usual um yeah perfect this was it this was the skill i was looking for because i knew you must have something in place that balances the kind of 
playing the high rollers, taking a lot of risk, that when things don't go well and you feel a little bit out of your depth or your game doesn't feel quite as sharp as you want it to be, there must be something you fall back on to get you through those patches that's very adaptive. And for you, it's this kind of remove yourself from the games. In that example, you, you spend three months studying and I like the kind of simplicity of just get better. I just had to get better. And I really, uh, I can tell from yourself, you've got a good intuitive feel, or at least you trust your feels. And in those moments, rather than the losing, I'm sure the losing was painful, but it was more like you felt that you were making more mistakes than you should have been. And that created a pain point. And that pain point led you to go, right, I need to study more, I need to work on my game, I'm gonna stop playing those games for a period and come back a better version of myself. And that's the key kind of ingredient where it's almost like, if I'm not good enough now, I'll get better and come back again. So it's like this ability to uh, navigate your space in terms of, it's not an absolute, like say the games are too tough for you that period if they weren't, but then you just got better. And I think that's the, yeah, the kind of key ingredient that allows you to keep coming back and playing these high stakes when other players might crumble when results went going their way. All right. Yeah, I, I was just going to say quickly, I, I think like switching maybe like short term, like short term past experiences to, uh, to be put like fully in the past quickly is very useful in those. Just like if you were losing, even if it was for an extended period of time and you were losing for six months, it's very hard to put that behind you. Uh, or for me, it used to be a lot harder, but I think seeing things as just like, okay, that happened in the past. And now like, the only thing I have to choose is the future year. Uh, and like separating those very quickly. It's being like, okay, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been playing those games the last six months. Do I want to play them the next six months? And what do I have to do to, make that not a bad decision and then like forget about the six months where you shouldn't have done and just been like okay that was a mistake i made in the past and i just can be like a different person now how do you move on quickly in those scenarios because then understand how powerful that skill set is but at the same time i know a lot of people struggle with the the story narrative let's say about six months that six months creates a little bit of a repetitive story of why they do this it's going badly is things going to turn around how do you like almost like draw a line and cut that story off and be very present orientated and future orientated? Is there anything, any skills you've developed to help you uh, kind of see forward rather than looking back? Uh, I guess it would just be the same that I said before, of just like changing habits. If, if you feel like, you know, you're losing and you don't want to be, just do something different, I guess, so that you don't feel like you're doing the same thing. Because I think that's the, for me, that's the scary thing with, the gambling where you know there's no one to stop you in poker there's no person who's going to come and be like hey you lost half your role like stop like maybe you have friends that do that but a lot of people don't or maybe you don't want to tell people and it's scary knowing that like if you carry on the same you could just lose everything uh so i think i don't know about other people but for me that is one of the worries in those situations so I would just do that and just, okay, I'm losing. I'm just going to change my habits completely. So I don't feel like I'm in the same narrative. Like I'm going to study really hard and then come back and play slightly lower games or take slightly bigger pieces until I feel confident again. Uh, and yeah, I, I think the same thing, like in the past, if I was, if I had habits on trips, that I thought weren't helping and you know at some point you just say okay I'm not going to do that anymore 
And I think that helps me personally move on quite quickly because as soon as you cut that thing out that you think was negatively affecting you, you feel different quite quickly. You feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing the same thing. So it's like, this is like a different set now. It's not like a continuation of the same sample. It's just like those thousand games were, I was doing that. And like these next thousand games, I'm going to do something different. So it's like a new slate. I love that. It's like creating a new identity. It's almost like the old version of me where these habits and was getting these results. He's gone now. And this new version of me, he shows up this way. It's very action oriented. It's almost like taking back control in that moment and just go, right, well, what can I do to change my path from here? And then not getting caught up in the old narratives. I think that's such a huge, huge skill set that you've developed or always been able to have to be able to just create a new version of yourself just by changing your habits, changing how you're showing up, where I think a lot of people struggle because they hold on to their old patterns in terms of the, the habits, but also uh, the stories they tell themselves. They create a narrative that six months that you've just easily moved on from. Someone else is telling themselves that story for a year, two years, three years. That six months becomes a, a four-year narrative, whereas for you, you can quickly see, wait a second, if I keep acting the way I was, then maybe that's true. But if I change the way I'm showing up, I study harder, I level up myself, I'm going to get different outcomes. So I can just draw a line in the sand, so to speak, and going forwards, I'm going to be a different, get a different result going forward. So yeah, really, really healthy. And I think yeah. it's a huge mindset. Hi guys, Renee, aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now, on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. All right, Renee, for yourself, do you are you able to uh, leave bad results in the past and create a positive perspective going forward? Or do you struggle with any periods of bad results? Actually, I can really relate to what Ben says and especially the last point that you touched on, right? Like, okay, you maybe were doing certain things. This is like, I think, the positive thing that you get from learning from mistakes. Let's say you see that you made some punts here and there, right? 
you don't feel exceptionally great about it. But if you understand why you did it, it's like, ah, oh, I'm clearly playing from like a wrong frame of mind. These things that I just did, for example, were unnecessary. I understand the flawed reasoning behind it because, you know, uh, if I talk for myself personally, actually, because I'm, I'm going through something very similar at the moment where I feel like I'm trying to force things a little bit too much. I'm trying to, I think that's how out of my analysis it came. I'm trying to use poker as showing a way that I can be great, okay? Or that I can be something superior. And then I start to make all kind of fancy plays, okay? That's kind of the origin. So if I see, see looking back at my database and I see that I made a lot of mistakes that are simply unnecessary, I make plays that are completely unnecessary, uh, and I understand the origin, I can easily be like, okay, that was not... It's kind of almost like that you sort of detach yourself from yourself and you see, like, okay, that was a version of me that was in the wrong state of mind. Or as you said, that had a wrong strategical approach. I now know that I understand that. I'm going to try to change certain habits so that I'm in a better state of playing so I prevent making these mistakes, right? Or maybe there was a flaw in how I approach things strategically or how I thought about the scenario. If I now change that, it almost looks like indeed it's a it's sort of a clean slate form. So why would I get the same results if I know why those results were coming that way because I did something wrong? And if I'm doing everything in my power to in the future change those things, then I can be naturally positive or I can feel excited and positive about the road going forward. And I think throughout your poker career, you constantly reinvent yourself in those ways, right? And usually through downswings, right? This is like the silver lining of downswings. Uh, something interesting that he pointed uh, uh, that Ben pointed out as well, I thought it was interesting about going broke. Well, usually people are afraid of going broke, right? And losing everything. Well, you in the beginning went broke multiple times and realized that you were still okay, right? You could make it back. So I guess then if the fear that a lot of people have is going broke and you went broke and you felt fine, quote, quote, uh, then like worst case scenario, going broke is, is not so scary anymore. So then I guess you're more willing to take on risk. And I love the way you talked about how it was almost a free roll. And uh, in, in my in my playlist, there's one song that sometimes comes up. I don't know, I have it on Shuffle and it's a playlist I listen to Spotify. And in that song, like I usually don't like to listen to uh, songs where people talk, but in the song, there's suddenly a guy that says, what if you fail? And then the other guy says, well, what if you don't? What if you fly? And that's what kind of, uh, that, that's what I had to think about. It's like the aggressive approach is like a free roll approach. It's like many people think like, oh no, but if I do this, I can lose everything. I can go broke. I can fail. But you have a very positive outlook on things. Well, wh what if I don't fail? You know, what if I fly? What, what, what if I, what if I can make this shot work? Right. Then I can suddenly play X the stake. Right. It's very that positive outlook that I think uh, uh, is, is really, really beneficial for you. Also confidence is something that, I mean, there's a lot of confidence in you because worst case scenario you can handle, which is going broke. You know that past results don't always equal future results, right? Because you are in control. You you know that you have the capability to, in this case, study your game, uh, come up with better strategies and know that different results uh, will come going forward, right? You have a lot of that confidence. Where, where do you think that comes from? Is that purely from your your ability or? I mean, I think... Just to like clarify with the with the thing of going broke, I was obviously in a lucky situation where I didn't have rent to pay mm -hmm. uh, when I was living with my parents, which some people don't have. And then like broke for me would be a different broke for someone else because my baseline expenses are very low. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it was also at a time where I thought I was winning at 100 Zoom. So going broke was more of like a, it wasn't ever going to, it didn't ever feel like it was going to be a permanent state because I'm like, well, I know I can win at 50 Zoom and you can win 15 an hour or something and I'm willing to work 60 hours a week. And if you're going to work 60 hours a week, you're going to get better and likely increase that hourly. So it was just like, I will go broke for a short period of time for the week after I lose these tournaments, but then I will earn enough to pay like the, you know, rent and food and stuff. So I think some of the confidence was just knowing that I could beat a game consistently that would give me enough money to live. Um, you know, if I was just starting with poker and was shot taking tournaments and didn't know I could consistently be at stake, then I would have to be a lot more cautious about going broke because, you know, that is actually a really negative outcome where maybe then you have to stop playing or maybe it has effects on your life outside of poker. So yeah, I think obviously like the, the, the skill, that. the skill that has your skill has to be aligned with the shots that you're taking, obviously, right? You're not taking shots in games that you're simply a losing player or you're not taking shots while you are a losing player because that outcome will always be losing. Yeah. So it's very important for the listeners to to indeed take this in consideration, right? That's kind of yeah. I think the point that 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 you were making that people don't get this the wrong way. So I yeah. think that's a good uh, that that's a good thing to align. Uh, you also mentioned because you were playing mainly uh, online cash games when you were living with Charlie, and you guys went out to take and you ended up taking very big shots in live tournaments so this is and a different format you went from cash games to tournaments and you went from the thing that you were used to at that moment online uh to live did any did, did you have any struggles transitioning from the cash to the mpts or from the online to the live i mean we were, we were actually playing all four like I, I would play zoom in the apartment and then i would play saturdays and sundays we'd play tournaments and then would also play live cash in the week, in the evenings at the casino. And then we'd play live tournaments traveling. Like we, we were just playing poker all the time. So it was just like, okay, Saturdays and Sundays are good for tournaments. Maybe Thursdays, you know, the weekdays are fine just for Zoom because you can play anytime you want. And then 5 p.m. onwards is good for live cash games because that's when the casinos get busier. So... And then, yeah, when, when we could go on the trips, we would. So we were just playing all four formats or like all four main Hold'em formats. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't do that anymore and actually don't recommend that as well. Like it, people I coach now, I generally say like, pick one. <laughs> I pick one and play that one. And, you know, you can play online and live of tournaments or cash, but I don't generally recommend the mixing of tournaments and cash because... I think it's just more competitive these days and depending on i mean if you're playing for fun and you're not that worried about your yearly earnings then sure like do both if you know that keeps you entertained and means you're willing to put in more hours and you don't really care about maximizing your hourly then go for it i think if you are looking to play high stakes then you just need to pick one like it's at some point people are just very good and mostly not 
not completely, but most of the people are dedicating their time to wine and you will have to compete against those people if you want to play the high stakes and you won't do it playing three days a week of each. Yeah, um, you're playing against specialists, right? When you reach the higher stakes. Whereas maybe back then there were maybe many people like you, there were maybe less specialists in the field. Everyone was just playing poker and hopping games. I mean, I used to do exactly the same. Played live, played some online, click the tournament, click the sit to go, click the cash game. Yeah. It was very, it was very broader, and I guess yeah, because of the level of play, you are more allowed to do so. Was it also like some approaches to poker? I guess offer more natural, or it's easier if you have a certain approach to poker to transition games between cash games and tournaments. You also mentioned through, I think it was a mathematics university that you had a more holistic approach. You also mentioned Charlie being very intuitively good at poker. Um, were there, was there also a point there at how he taught you poker or at least how he helped you with your poker game to understand it at a deeper level, more intuitive level that transitioning between games was a bit easier for you or was it purely the, the level of play that made you able to transition in between games uh yeah i mean i think the way that charlie thought about poker did make it easier than if i'd learned some really mechanical approach to one game um or some repetitive thing like where people are just trying to memorize certain strategies uh charlie was much more kind of like higher thought input maybe like not much repetitive stuff just like what do i want to get the person to do in this exact hand and that was like equally relevant to you know tournaments and cash but th there was definitely just i don't think it was an easy transition and when i look back i think i was playing cash not as well as anywhere near as well as i could have been in tournaments not as well as i could have been because there was just way too much crossover where you're just playing like anti-games and no anti-games like deep stack and short stack and like stuff just gets you get like wires crossed st stuff like you don't specialize in enough uh you know i think you see that a lot even these days when you see cash players come and play tournaments and you suddenly put them at 20 bigs like you were saying with four bet pots you know like sizes are small and like there are just concepts that not don't exist but are very different to 100 big blind poker and if you haven't spent a lot of time playing it you won't have any population reads on that you won't know like you kind of it's hard to intuitively grasp like you said how much to defend versus the small sizes and you know if you're jumping between them there's stuff you're gonna miss so i don't even know looking back whether whether I was successfully transitioning between the two, uh, you know, I think over time I got better at both, but the, the time in my career when I've progressed the most and played the highest stakes has been the last few years, which has been, you know, more like a kind of single focus on MTTs. And, you know, now I don't play online and I almost never play cash. Like if there are cash games running sometimes in a live stop and I have a few days off, I will. But like, it's almost never these days. So it's just playing kind of 
these small field high stakes live MTTs. And I think that has been uh, a kind of different level of progress for me. What has made you focus mainly on live instead of playing online? Why, 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 why do you prefer the live environment, the live stops instead of online? Uh, I mean, I think, like I said, I, I'm, I do enjoy the gambling and online there like weren't that many when I was playing before there weren't that many days where you could actually get a lot of money on in online MTTs you know like a, you, I was just playing poker stars a lot and like how much money can you get on the table in a random Wednesday mm -hmm. uh, then uh, so yeah I also had that because I, I feel like I play my best and like really want to play when there is a lot of money on the line and if I played lower stakes I just like wouldn't always try my hardest which I didn't like um so you need then, a certain buy-in sort of stress in order to kind of make I you think, feel awake like I can I can imagine a lot of people would kind of have the opposite right they feel in their comfort zone maybe in a lower buy-in and they feel like they can play better and when they would go play a high role it's just too much press pressure and they actually their game kind of crumbles you kind of experience the opposite uh to some extent yeah i mean I, i don't really want to play online for like 10 hours in a row for stakes that don't affect me that much mm -hmm. uh, and uh also sometimes like the I like the competition. Like I like playing against mostly very tough people. So I, I'm also like not as much of a fan of the bigger field stuff. Um, mm. so, so, I mean, sometimes it's a bit frustrating if you like go and study good theory stuff and then you're playing a bunch of lines that are very different. Um, I, I, I mean, I do enjoy that, but I think... I would prefer to play more against tough opponents. Like I find it just a bit more stimulating in terms of the actual game. You ever uh, get intimidated by uh, by tough fields, tough tables, or the the better the opponents, the more it puts you in the zone? Uh, I mean, I think a little just in terms of just there's a lot of money on the line, you know, so I don't really want to go and play a 250k if it's just like, uh, you know, if it's just like Stevie, Nikita and Adamo, like I, I would like to play against them and it's enjoyable, but I don't want to go and play just against those three and put 250k there because it's a lot of money. Uh, so I guess, I don't know, yeah, I don't think it's like intimidation, more just not wanting to gamble for huge amounts of money for people that are better than me. Uh, but, you, you know, I, I do like playing against those in the, like the Triton Invitational recently, the 200K they did in Cyprus, where the first day is split. So you only play against pros on the first day and the businessmen only play against each other. Oh, cool. I didn't know they did it uh, this way. That, like I had an amazing like I really enjoyed that first day because it's a little weird where there's some kind of you know 
weird ICM stuff where you only have a single re-entry and you do want to make it to the part of field part of the tournament where you're not just playing pros. Um, hmm. So there is, you know, it's not like a normal tournament structure and there are adjustments, but because it's single re-entry and it's only eight levels or something, you are effectively just playing normal day one poker against tables of mostly just top pros and that was well but while still having the comfort of knowing you are winning a lot in the field because it's one pro to one businessman so that's kind of like the best of both worlds where you're like i know i'm winning in this game but i get to play this table that is very tough and play like try and play very good poker and get put to the test a lot and like that was one of the days i've had the most fun in a while playing poker in the last few years that's very interesting again it has like i think if you would put me on a table obviously i'm i'm, I'm way less skilled but let's say a cash game table of some of the best i guess it's the same right if you increase the money i would feel less comfortable if it's at a money budget that i'm comfortable with i would also enjoy myself uh so 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 i i can indeed relate to that how did the Obviously, you had certain ideas, right? You already mentioned ICM-wise. Obviously, busting uh, is a bit more costly, as you know that basically the EV on day two when they mix the tables is going to be higher. Uh, or at least that's how I assume it's go is going to work. How did you notice it changed the game? You had probably have certain ideas about strategies going in, right? Oh, wait, this actually changed the game. How in practice did you see the game changing because of the way they set this up? I mean, I think slightly less than maybe you'd expect because first it's single entry, so it's not like a freeze out where, you know, it's single entry over eight levels where I think we started to, can't remember, but somewhere between 204, 200 and 400 big blinds deep you start. So you're starting very deep and you play eight levels where you're... I can't remember, but the last level of the day is between like 50 and 80 big blinds. So you're playing 200 hands of 75 to 300 big blind poker. It's not like it, you're that likely to fire two anyway. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, there are some people I think that have different views on that because if you... If you make chips in that, you also have more often that you get to play for longer when the fields join because you just have a bigger stack. So while I think there is ICM, there were definitely differing viewpoints and you do have to be careful of you don't know who in the field has those views and you don't want to just like get run over by someone who's playing crazy or like someone who's trying to take advantage of the fact that people are trying to yeah, yeah exactly that was kind of what's going through my mind like if, if if everyone wants to make day two then obviously you're going to play hyper aggressive right but yeah it's it's indeed yeah it's interesting so then you go try to look out for okay obviously you have a very good idea of what uh what, what the theory baseline would be for certain hands certain plays uh so if you see certain showdowns that you would say okay this is this guy's clearly pushing it this is over the line you could make an assumption that this is his approach which you could use that information to to lighten up a little bit 
in the past, in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there were just not huge adjustments because I think anytime if you make a really big adjustment like that on day one where you're like, oh, I'm just not going to three bet. Like you're playing as people who are good enough and aware enough to notice that. And then your strategy just loses so much EV that you don't actually gain what you want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then, yeah, I think because it's single re-entry and so deep that the average bullets isn't that high anyway. So I, I don't think there were like huge changes. And then it's also just really hard for me to, for me to see because you're playing 200 hands and most of them not on stream. So, and even if they are on stream, I can't tell. I'm like, okay, so I, I saw this guy get Jack Nine suited once and it's meant to be 53 bet, 50 call. And he called, like, that doesn't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't say anything. Doesn't tell me that he would. So, like, some people you got to feel because it's like one or two people that day are like, he hasn't three bet today. But, you know. But even that, you know, yeah, you can tell. Yeah, it's like 200 hands. Like 200 hands. So you're like, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Uh, how, how, how do you deal with that like in live poker where obviously in in the high roller field is it's a bit different because you play you build up sample against people and that's probably also something that you find very in, uh, enjoying right that you can actually play against the same players you can develop strategies uh but how do you do that with unknowns i think a lot of people give a lot of emphasis oh i played three orbits this guy hasn't played a hand and now he raised must be aces right but how do you deal with the fact that it's you have less information. Does that just revert your strategy way more towards uh, uh, GTO, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can still have some reads, like especially if you play online, you might, there's a lot of people that play online and you can have reads where you have more hands from them from those games. Uh, if it's someone you don't play, you can either go by like just population reads uh, generally, most of the people I play against are the same people, and I'm playing more hands against them. If I play like a 10k or 25k that's a lot bigger, like the ones in PCA, I think the 25k's had 180 people or something. So, and then the massive one had a thousand people. You know, you just kind of have to. I mean, hopefully, you would have some notes. If you don't, you can just like make an educated guess of maybe by their Hendon mobile results, like how you think they'll play. Uh, or you can just play, just try and play good poker against people. I think that like, it's much more dangerous to do like what, what you said. I have had actually quite a few people that I've coached to play live do say that where this guy had a three bet for an hour. And I'm just like, aren't you playing 22 hands an hour? Like <laughs> he, they might, they might not have be pipped for an hour. And it, I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> or, you know, online, if you start, if you play, if you sit down and zoom and you just see like zero, zero, zero out of 22 hands, you, you just instantly say, okay, 22 hands. I just don't care about those stats until it's 2000 hands or something. I just like, you just don't even look at the HUD stats until they're, over a couple of thousand hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at some, maybe like the button open or under the gun open where, you know, it starts to be more reliable early on. But yeah, live, four hours playing with someone doesn't tell you anything. And I think it's way more dangerous to say, to make like big exploits based on four hours of play. Uh, 
at least on things that you haven't seen, you know, saying like the lack of three bet or lack of opening doesn't yeah. mean much. If you actually saw a showdown and it's like he opened this hand, he's definitely not meant to, or then went with it and he was definitely just supposed to give it up. Yeah. Then like those you can make exploits pretty quickly on live because some people are just way off. Um, you know, you have that all the time. I think in Vegas, it's quite common where uh, I think at World Series last year, I opened the button and some guy like folded a six off face up to me in the big blind. And he's just nice. like, thank you. Where he's just like, oh, like ace rag showing like, oh, I didn't fold a good hand. And like in his head, this just isn't a good hand. And, you know, then you can be like, oh, I just opened 100% abundance now. Yeah, it's the play that you use you you that you would make with eight deuce offsuit, and you do it for the same reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that so, was not very smart of the big line. So, like those things, you can make huge adjustments. But yeah, I, I would definitely avoid doing this kind of. I haven't seen this guy three bet today, so I'm gonna assume it's aces. I wanted to revert a little bit back to the storyline after after you went broke and you spent at the five. Five to six years, I think it took you between that period to actually establish yourself at the high roller scene. Um, in these five, six years, what drove you to to get towards the high roller scene and to get it to stick? What was like the why uh, behind every day showing up and you know putting in the work? And also, how has your why changed throughout your career? Uh. I think for most of my career, I've just showed up because I enjoy it. Like I just want to play and I want to get better. So there's not, it doesn't really feel like, oh, I am choosing to show up and do, it's just like, that's my natural, I like games. I really like this game. And, uh, you know, it's done a lot for me in terms of providing an income as well. And I don't really know what, you know, a lot of the years, there was just no alternative. I didn't want to do anything else. So it wasn't really, I didn't even have an aim always to, it wasn't like I was just thinking, oh, I want to be able to play 50K. So I'm going to aim for that. It was just, I want to play poker and I want to play the highest stakes that I can play at my ability. So I will get better because I'm competitive and want to get better. I'm going to play because I want to play every day. And if that means that in a year's time I get to play a 50k because I think that's my level and I have the bankroll for it, then so be it. But I don't think I actually had that much of a kind of aim of, you know, I'm going to sit down and work until I can get to that level. You're very process focused. You're just like, listen, I'm going to put in the day every day because I enjoy playing poker. Playing poker is what I do. And then you evaluate the situation. Oh, apparently I have this much money now where I'm at this skill level. So now I can actually play this game. Yeah, yeah, I think it was probably even less thought than that. It wasn't even, it was just like, you know, what am I going to do today? Play poker. Like, <laughs> I just want to play well, poker. I'm curious, uh, walk, walk, walk us through a day in the life of a 25-year-old Ben. A week in the life, month in the life. I mean, it can be all the same, basically, if you just play poker every day. But what, you wake up, you... Yeah, 25, I'm just trying to think. You're uh, playing online or live? Cash and TT were still mixing it up. Mostly live then, still mixing, I think. Uh mostly MTTs, mostly live. Uh I didn't I 
I didn't like the online thing for a long time because of the schedule in Europe. I really don't. I really didn't like the thing of only really playing Sundays and sometimes like Thursdays because those were the bigger days. And then it just, but then going till 4 a.m. And that's not the time I wanted to be up until the other nights. Uh, so I think that was like the main driver of me stopping online. You know, if I lived in Canada, I would probably still be playing online more uh, because it wouldn't mess with, you know, my, like now when I go out for dinner with friends or I go to the gym in the morning with friends, it's normal time schedules because a lot of my friends have different jobs. So if I was living in Canada and could play 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., it wouldn't mess that up. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was one of the bigger reasons I stopped online. So I think in like 2015, I was already mainly just playing live and was traveling a lot, I think. I think I was traveling like seven to 10 months a year, depending on the year. Because, I mean, there were just so many poker stops. Like if you were playing different, if you were happy to play all stakes, you could just go and play games all the time. Like now it's a bit harder if I want to play uh, the higher stake stuff. There are just, there's just a limit of how many stops there are that have those games. Um, but at the time I could just kind of happily travel 10 months a year and just always be playing. So I think it was more that it was just like, sometimes be home, hang out with parents and friends and play Zoom or online tournaments every day and then and then travel and i guess the only real time off would be like sometimes taking time before or after trips like after the aussie millions would take you know a week or two to be in australia the two or three times i went um and sometimes like i think before around bahamas i used to go to new york for a few days see friends and then like maybe miami on the way home um so like other than those times off, it was just I was either on a poker trip or at home and playing poker. Yeah, I can definitely relate to choosing, I guess you could say choosing a little bit of life EV, right? You don't want to have a weird schedule that kind of screws up your social life. For example, I for a long time I played nine to five, like office jobs. Yeah. Uh, and that was just that was just what I wanted to do. And even if there was a big will or something at five o'clock, I was like, well, it's five o'clock, work day is over, fit <laughs> out. Bye-bye. See you next day, right? It's yeah. Just, yeah. It's, you, you have to figure out what works for you, right? Did you ever maybe consider, you said if you would live in Canada or maybe Mexico or something, you could do that. Have you ever considered uh, moving there to play more online poker? Maybe especially when the buy-in start to increase over the years? Uh, not particularly. I think I, I just enjoyed it less anyway. I, I liked online cash, but I wasn't a huge fan of online tournaments. Uh, I agree with this one, actually. And I liked, I, I liked the traveling, and that was like, you know, I was traveling, like I said, like seven to ten months a year, and that was enough poker. So I didn't really have that many times where I was looking for how can I play more. I was just enjoying what I was doing, uh, and then I think since over the last maybe four or five years where things have been a lot more but at the time when I first started poker it was studying was just talking hands it just like talk to Charlie and be like hey do you think this hand was good or bad like like you know 
there was much more limited study and it's like okay watch your run it once video and hope the guy you're watching is telling you the right stuff they might not be like they're winning in their games they still might tell you the wrong things i mean i watch i watch stuff these days to keep up with everything and i watched a coaching video the other day like a you know youtube free coaching thing and they were saying some stuff about spot that i think was completely wrong but you know if you're watching the video how are you how do you know like how would you know and i think like i know now but you can't tell and at the time that was your only option now there's the last like four or five years i've been doing my study mostly with solvers and you know you're still doing it with friends but there's a lot more focus on solvers and for at least certain parts of poker you have more reliable outputs so since that's happened i've kind of enjoyed the not being such a full schedule anyway like i travel five months a year and then i study the time off which is like nice as well so i don't think i've ever had that point of needing more poker to play uh, that, that makes a lot of sense i'm curious in terms of grinding a life schedule uh how has your i guess professionality evolved then over those years you mentioned in the past it was more you go with the flow oh uh san remo okay well poker trip later on you start to plan more like your hourlies and i'm also curious in terms of expenses like in the beginning i can imagine you know you're you're attracted to flashy things uh later in your career it remained the same or you became more conscious about okay i want to achieve a certain hourly therefore i need to pick these stops therefore i need to keep my expenses or this budget is there anything like that going on or was it always just go with the flow basically up until now or did you evolve um, throughout the years in how you plan those things like buying uh, tickets earlier for example yeah i mean i think it's definitely changed if, if anything it's maybe gone the the opposite to the way you were suggesting in terms of when i was first starting i had to buy tickets really early because i had no I didn't have any money. Like when I first mm -hmm. went, I think the first time I went to Bahamas, I had like a 3K roll or something. And I got a flight from LA to London for 120 with Norwegian. And, you know, like four months in advance or something. And I had to do that because I was going to Bahamas and had a 3K roll and I wanted money to play the game. So I couldn't spend like 1K on the flights. Now I am studying so much and the games have like i think my you know my hourly is a lot higher than it was then the trips are worth a lot more and i think my study time and personal time at home i value a lot higher and i will kind of value convenience over budgeting so like if i have to spend more to be able to book a flight later when i know which one i want i will do that uh same in terms of like long trips, if I'm going in the direction, like, you know, this one coming up, I fly from Paris on the 27th to Vietnam, arrive on the 28th and play on the 1st. And I don't need to on the way back because I, on the way back, I'm not coming back to play games, but from Paris to Vietnam, I'm flying business because I think it's worth it to sleep when I have to play the next day and it's a 17 hour travel day. So I think if anything, it's kind of gone the other way in terms of I'm, I'm almost willing to spend more on stuff 
now just because I think it's the value is there to do it. Uh, in terms of the hourly and choosing trips, I don't, at the moment, there's some of that, but I think there really are limited, you know, for the games I want to play, there's only kind of four or five months of trips a year. So I typically just play them all because otherwise, I mean, I don't play them all. I don't always go to, I think there's a few like recently before Bahamas, there was poker go stuff in Vegas. Um, and I didn't really want to do that. So, you know, I won't play a hundred percent of everything, but I typically just play every EBT, every Triton stop and then Vegas in summer. Uh, so I don't have to kind of work out my, you know, hourly or how much the trips are worth as much because I'm pretty much just going to play them. Uh, I have had to do more planning over the last few years. Like I started seeing someone just before COVID and we got married four months ago, five months ago uh, in September. Thank you. Uh, so now we do a little more planning in terms of, you know, I'm not going to Vegas for the whole seven weeks because that's a long time to be apart and we don't want to do that. So now there's some like personal life planning. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, changed over the years but it's still roughly similar in terms of i go and play what i want to play and that happens to be fewer things these days but it is still the same in terms of when there are games in vegas if i don't feel like going to vegas and being jet lagged i just don't go and if that means giving up ev fine uh, yeah but so you, you you got yourself in a situation where you can just give up ev right uh, and I think actually this was, uh, I was listening to another conversation you had with someone else. And I think you mentioned, uh, it was something about in this period, right? 25 year old Ben, you're just grinding your ass off also for like future EV and future sort of freedom, right? What you had to do with your time back then. Uh, well, not much, right? So let's just focus on poker. So right now, for example, in the future, maybe if you have family life, you would like to spend more time and you got yourself in a position where you can choose to play poker if you want to, but you don't have to. Would you then recommend people in their 20s basically grind their ass off to have this future freedom? Do you think that has gains a lot of life EV? I think, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I know, I know there's been some discussion about this recently with, uh, I think, a few people who have gone back and forth about how much you should enjoy or 20s versus work I mean it, it's quite funny at the time because I remember thinking and saying at the time that oh one day hopefully I will get married and I may want more time and freedom then to be with her and I don't and now I'm single and I want to play poker so I just want to like earn money to give me that freedom then and it's like has actually worked out that way and now I have the option to do that uh at the time, I uh, I was like going through some like tough personal stuff when I was in my first years of poker, and 
poker also I think offered me like a nice distraction from that in terms of sometimes when I was just by myself with my thoughts I wasn't very happy at the time and poker was quite a like I was I was happy when I played poker it was like very you know if you're four tabling zoom I would just be thinking about that and while I would not like in hindsight I would have told myself hey like get therapy like it doesn't just go away by playing poker over it but at the time I didn't really know these things didn't know how to deal with it and that was like a way that I dealt with it at the time whether that was good or bad um so at the time it just made sense to me I was like you know I'm not that happy right now and when I'm just doing other stuff that's not poker I'm not even enjoying it that much because I'm kind of sad so if I can make a bunch of money for some like time in the future I won't be sad that yeah. seems like a good option again like right. not not endorsing that yeah should've, no it, it, should've, it, it should have got therapy instead but it, it, it was very convenient for your situation I, I guess the thing is if if putting yourself all in in poker and if that means grinding six seven days a week if that actually makes you very unhappy while doing it obviously maybe you should reconsider how yeah. much time you're spending and maybe you should balance it out a little bit more but overall, I would say I agree. I actually always had a different mindset. Reflecting on it, I think there were definitely some some flaws in there. I saw a lot of people around me having the same mindset, right? Like, oh, I-'m going to work my ass off now to play sixteen hours uh, sixteen hour days, grind six days a week because you know I can my EV is higher now. I need to make all my money now. And I always looked at that maybe a little bit. I'm like, I guess it was a bit, I don't know. I, I never really understood it because I always said like, yeah, it's not like if poker's over, you're not going to do anything. Uh, that was always kind of my philosophy. But now in hindsight, I understand more, ah, it's the, yes, you can still do things, but you do it because you want to, not because you have to. And that was kind of the part that I missed. I think in hindsight, also looking back, I had a little bit uh, bad associations around making money, which kind of prevented me from focusing more on making money now that my EV was at its highest. For example, when I was basically at the peak of the peak of my career, highest earning potential, I decided to focus on coaching instead, which, you know, from a very EV-driven perspective and the way people would 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 look at poker normally, that was not a great decision. I have my reasons for that. Hindsight looking again, I think there were definitely some flaws in it. But so I, I would say as long as it doesn't make you completely unhappy, no, no, wait, as long as it doesn't make you unhappy, you shouldn't. Uh, you should definitely go for it, right? When you have the chance, so that later in life you don't have to at least make the decisions because you have to financially do something, right? I think. I think that's in general. I would say good advice. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some balance there in terms of you know, it's there's no. It's, you know, if you're 35 or 40 or whatever age, when maybe you would like to slow down a bit, it's like, it, it doesn't matter if you're still working, you still like poker, that's fine. And you don't need to give up 100% of your 20s, never have any fun or do anything else because you want to not work at all when you're 40. Uh, like, I think there should be some balance. And, and you enjoyed yourself, right? While traveling, you enjoyed traveling. So it was a, it was that, a good, that, yeah, that's what things, made it things easy came together. Me. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, at the time I loved it and I didn't w want to do anything else most days. Uh, and I, I think like some of the things maybe I would have liked to do, but were hard to do in terms of like, maybe I would have liked to do, you know, five days after a trip. Uh, 
doing certain things or going to like music festivals in summer. And I still did some of those things, but some of them were hard just because I had kind of, I wasn't in a group of people that were doing that. And I just chose like, oh, if I want to do those things regularly, it might mean being like changing my routine. Like you can't just suddenly, you can't go from being like 99% work and then the 1% suddenly do really fun things because you haven't planned them in the time, you know, you're, you were mostly working. So sometimes the kind of time off was a little less fun maybe because I was in that work mode and was friends with people who were also doing that. Uh, we still did, you know, a bunch of stuff when we could. Uh, and I mean, there was a lot of variety in your lifestyle, traveling various locations, meeting various people. Yeah. It's, that, not, it's, a... it's not like if you play online on, you know, in your basement and you lock yourself up for six, for six years, have no interaction with people. That's, that's obviously a little bit different. I would say. No, I, I found it a lot hard. Like when we lived in London, even just playing four days online in a row, I would find tougher and like want to go out and do stuff in London. But yeah, I mean, traveling to casinos and playing, you kind of feel like you're like on holiday all the time. You're, yeah, you're meeting new people. I think it was good for me confidence wise. I was quite shy in like school and university and it was quite good just like meeting a lot of new people. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, for me, I didn't really feel that much like I was missing anything and, and still don't actually, <laughs> I don't really feel like I missed out on anything. That's, I would just go back and do it the same. Um, and even now, like, yeah, I'm in a position now where I can skip trips, but I work on poker pretty much every day of the year. And so it's not like, oh, I've like got to this point and now I can like finally take time off poker. Like I still just don't want to. So, you know, maybe in the future, if I decide not to play poker at one point, I will really appreciate not having to do anything for money and can do something like a job that's not paid if I want to. But, you know, I'm still not at the point where I'm like, oh, I gave up my 20s, but at least now I don't have to play poker. Like at the moment, I'm still... Yeah, exactly. But, but this is the thing, right? You, you, have, you have choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you, I, wor and you, wor you worked yourself, you worked hard to get yourself in a position where you can choose. I think that's, that's very valuable advice. And then people should reflect on what working hard means for them. Yeah. And, you know, if, if they value, uh, if you value, if they value this equally. You, and, you, well, you, and being mm -hmm. able to choose, like, I think a lot of people kind of maybe frame it as being able to choose to not play poker. And maybe that is the way, you know, there are some people who come into poker that I speak to who are already looking for a way out. They're like, oh, I want to use poker to earn money to do this. But, even if you want to be a poker player, uh, I'm lucky now in terms of being able to take six months a year to study at home is also like a massive privilege because a lot of people are like, no, I can't do that. I need to play. I need to come back from the yeah. trips and play online to pay life expenses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I've given myself the opportunity to do this thing outside of poker. I've also given myself the opportunity to spend more time studying which i like just as much as playing and you know now get to do that and not be like oh i'm not earning money this month because i'm not traveling 
I've heard you mention throughout the conversation studying a lot. You also talked about how studying has evolved using solvers. You also mentioned you went on like a little bit of a three-month stretch where you studied for six, seven days. Basically, I guess I'm going to ask you the question. What do you do if you study the game for three months, six, seven days a week? Are you just kind of rebuilding your game from scratch? How does that look? Uh, I mean, at the time I was kind of, yeah, I guess rebuilding from scratch in terms of I hadn't done a ton of solver work and was learning this new way to think about situations and really learning how the solvers work. Um, and, you know, it's compared to playing, I find the studying very tough, like it's very tiring. And I can't do, I can't study eight hours a day, whereas I can play eight hours a day. Um, so, you know, when I say six or seven days a week, I don't mean six, seven days a week, 10 hours a day, like playing, like when I was playing online, I might just, I just mean like four hours a day. And then I was cycling a lot, swimming a lot and climbing and, you know, seeing like my parents and uh, watching final tables and stuff. Um, but like the actual hard studying was, you know, a few hours a day. Um, but yeah, it was at that point, the, those three months, it was kind of like re rebuilding some things from scratch in terms of how you think, how I thought about poker, uh, because, you know, I'd never learned it from the solver. Like we didn't have solvers when I first started and, you know, suddenly we did. And there are certain things where the computer thinks very differently to humans about poker and learning that was you know it takes quite a lot of time because you have to recalibrate and realize where you're like oh this makes a ton of sense to me this is how poker works this is how i'm going to play this situation and then the computer's like no that's not how poker works and that's not how you should play the situation and you have to realize that the th thing you thought you understood was just like a narrative you told yourself about how you or someone else had told you the game worked and they were guessing and you know some of that just got completely eradicated <laughs> and you have to be like oh actually uh you know there's a lot more to learn here so uh yeah it was just kind of a lot of time what was the 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 like the biggest aha moment you had in those in those periods period uh it's a good question actually i'm not i'm not actually off the top of my head i can't really think of a single one i mean it's just so much like the whole just conceptually how different poker is when you look at it from that way to how people did 10 years ago I mean, not everyone, you know, when you look back, there were some people who kind of knew what was going on, but 99.9% .9 of the field, I think, thought about poker very differently to the computer. So I don't think, I didn't really have one thing where I'm like, oh, this is crazy. It was more like, all of this is crazy. <laughs> all of it was crazy. But for example, I mean, before that, so now, now I'm actually curious because, you know, there, there was always some debate. I remember when I was doing Twitching, I had a clip of Charlie saying, fuck GTO, GTO is not the way to go. And then I also saw actually YouTube videos of uh, GTO guys reviewing Charlie's play and thought process. And actually he was very GTO. He wasn't saying that he was playing GTO, but his a lot of his thought process in terms of 
thinking what you're trying to achieve. This is something a solver is trying to achieve something, right? With certain strategy that it use. And Charlie was also trying to achieve certain things. Two questions then, actually, I don't think I asked you. What was like the main aha moment that you got from uh, when you started with Charlie? And how close to, to, to GTO, how much similarities did, did, did the way Charlie approached poker and the solvers approach poker, how much similarities uh, did you find? This is, I think, I think a question that uh, our audience will, 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 will like to hear. I think the main thing with him that I realized that like I was not intuitively doing was just like the aggression levels. I think a lot of the top guys are just at some point in their career pushed it with aggression to wanting to win every pot. And a lot of them probably went too far at points against certain people. But I think that's how you learn where the lines are is that like most of the top guys have at some point pushed it too far. And naturally I was a lot tighter. Um, so I, I think that that was like something that I felt a big difference with Charlie. Uh, he was a bit more optimistic in terms of good things happening. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like, yeah, I mean, the the like GTO versus not GTO stuff. I think, I mean, it's very hard to to say. I think a lot of people who are, you know, you get people who are very naturally good at poker. And like you said, they might be saying, oh, like I don't play GTO, but they maybe are in terms of, yeah, exactly. or, 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 they're, they're not, they're not, but like, they haven't studied that, but maybe they're closer to that than they think. And it might just be from a thing of, you know, solvers are like playing against each other and iterating down to a solution where neither of them can improve. And maybe someone who's just like, oh, I don't play GTO is kind of doing the, full exploit line and just knowing quite well about the like having very good assumptions about the other players level so the solver will be like i need to defend from this strategy that might happen and maybe like someone who is doing the like fuck gto approach might be like intuitively i would know that against someone i think is a top player but against this guy i don't need to worry about that so i'm just not going to do that so, and then, you know, some people frame that as like not playing GTO, but you're, you're not playing against the computer. So like, you don't need to. So in a sense you are, you're just node locking kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you're but still you can like, only, you can only node lock efficiency if you understand poker. And that's yeah, what you kind of said about the intuitive. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think that like, I don't know, in some ways, I think that like both parts of that argument are usually closer than they come across. Yeah, exactly. They, and... they kind of hate on each other, but if they would just talk about the similarities that they have, hug each other, you know, spread, spread, spread more love between the worlds, they would actually see that they have a lot of things in common. I mean, you kind of naturally hear from the more polarizing sides anyway, right? Because a lot of the people you yeah. hear from have YouTube channels or coaching things. And it's a very good point. Things mm -hmm. these days, like clicks get money and they're like the algorithm. Polarizing push things. Push you like, towards yeah, being yeah. polarizing. 
Exactly. If you, if you just talk to someone who like doesn't have a coaching site or doesn't have a YouTube channel, you probably hear a much more middle <laughs> response because you know you you hear that all the time. You hear people say like, "Oh, like the top tournament guys play this way," and it's like, "No, we don't." And like <laughs> you know, and you hear it from people who don't play our games. So it's like you don't know how we we play, and maybe we, we disagree with that. But people just say. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions on that area for you sure. Just say whatever you, you see the same in high stakes cash, like oh, or like you know the fact that everyone is GTO and there's there's no more room. But you know, if you look at uh, high stakes cash games as well, yeah, no, nobody plays perfect. They not everyone agrees on strategical approaches. There's obviously there's also many strategical approaches you can still take that would still be you know good strategies, and you know a lot of people still don't agree, and that's why poker you know is still there's still so much room uh yeah i mean that happens I, a lot with the high state cash guys right where you hear people who are like low to mid stakes say oh like this guy is just like gto robot and then when you watch some of those really top guys play you're like they are they're almost the like the way yeah. like they, <laughs> they they can play that way but they are off in like almost every sport because they're trying to be and i think it's like they get claimed as like the GTO robots by people who don't know enough about theory to spot whether they're actually, they're just like, oh, he took some sick line. It was probably GTO. I don't understand. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's just, so I, I think that happens a lot, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the most vocal people at the moment, generally, I think just have incentives for, polarized. for yeah, getting very good reactions. Point. So you just naturally always hear about that. And the people that are going to give you the really like well thought out moderated responses or like more moderate responses are not the ones that are online saying it and don't have an incentive to be online saying it. So yeah, I think that just happens that's a, a lot. That, that, that's a very good point. I, I think the the non I think a big difference, what the non-GTO guys try to say is that they don't put a lot of emphasis on a lot of things that are important to the solver because the solver knows both strategies. Uh, so they don't see the the necessity to defend a certain part of their range or defend a certain or play their range in a certain way because else something can happen in the future uh, that I would completely ag agree with. It's often there's a lot of things in the solver that are just not very uh, important in real life. But in terms of then how they play certain like I would say hand placement and bet sizing in terms of what they're trying to achieve by putting a hand in a certain sizing or a hand in a certain line. That's where intuitive players are very similar to solvers because they just very much understand what pushing a hand into a certain direction early on in the street with a certain sizing or by checking or betting, what that hand's trying to achieve. And I think that's something that both solver players, both solvers and the intuitive players, they know very well. Personally, yeah. uh, actually, before I started coaching, I was using very, and I saw this with players around me as well. We were using very little solvers, actually. I was starting to use solvers mainly actually when I was doing coaching because I thought it was an, a good tool to explain <laughs> what, 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 how I thought things would work. Obviously, throughout the process, while explaining things to, to other players and using solvers, I saw a lot of things like, okay, apparently here I was wrong, right? So the solver did teach me a lot of things. But a lot of the concepts, like I said, especially hand choice placement, bet sizing, in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, a lot of the things were actually very similar. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, you know, throughout the studying and with solvers, you improved a lot. You earlier mentioned uh, you 
or at least uh, that's how I understood it. You thought you were not as good as, for example, Stevie, Mikita, Ademo. I think you you mentioned these three names. What makes them so, in your eyes, uh, maybe superior to the field? Uh, not them specifically, but what do like the better players or the players who you see as the top dogs in the high road? What do you think do they do better or what makes someone stand out? I mean, I think... I think it's pretty hard to say in terms of, I think some of this stuff, people just have different natural talent and ability levels. So you will, you know, it's very unlikely that people have the exact same level. And once you get to a certain state where everyone's putting in really hard work, you might just revert to having the talent come back out. Like I think at mid stakes, you can kind of outwork a lot of people who are maybe more talented than you. Because if someone's putting in eight hours a week of study and thinks that's enough and they're better than you naturally, but you want to put in 25 hours a week of study, you most like, unless you're, you know, what much worse than them, you're going to outperform them. Once you get to the higher stakes where everyone's pretty good naturally and you're all putting in 60 hours a week of play and study and there's not really much more hours you can put in you know, there's some like efficiency stuff with how you study your resources and like how you spend your time. Um, but, you know, if everyone's doing pretty similar levels of that, it might just come down again to who was naturally better. Uh, some of it, I also think is time spent in the game. Like, you know, you see some of the online cash guys that did really well six seven years ago and came up really fast you know it turned out in the end that some of them were just the first people to access solvers and i think that that has also been one of the things that has created a bit less turnover like when i first started playing you saw a lot more kind of 20 21 year olds coming up and crushing and these days i think the high stakes pool is generally older and you don't see quite as many new people because I think it's just hard. A lot, you know, there is changing. There's still stuff changing with certain things, but, you know, Pyrosolver has had pretty good outputs for just like heads up poker for a while. And how easy is it? for you to catch up as a 21 year old with a 30 year old who's been studying the solvers for seven years you know there's just like too much experience there so some of it i think is that in terms of you know maybe i i think i've been using the solvers for like five years now maybe sometimes i play against someone who's been using them for eight and sometimes the difference might just be that it's like an extra an extra three years uh of you know, we're both trying to play the same way and they've got three years more behind them of doing that. Some, I think, is just like natural ability. Like you see some players, you know, like, uh, I think there's just, yeah, some people that still play multiple games like short deck, cash and MTTs. And they're just very, very good intuitively at poker and getting these concepts right. And it's hard to like 
pinpoint exactly what makes them crush the games. But yeah, again, I guess it's the same as I was saying before. Maybe it's just like a natural ability. They are just, uh, you know, takes less effort for them to understand things and nail the concepts. And so like, if you both put the same work in, they will just be slightly better. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I've had points in my career where I've thought that, you know, like, uh, you know, I I remember thinking before, like, oh, the top 50 in the world are all talented at poker. They all work a lot and I work a lot and I think I'm less talented and I'm maybe a hundred and I don't think I can ever get into the top 50 because like where like where does that come from if they're already working as hard as me and they're and I think they're naturally better than me how would I get into the top 50 and now uh I would think that I am in the top 50 and was if that's true was wrong at that point so it's also hard for me to say in terms of you know maybe some of that stuff will change and people overtake each other and uh it's quite hard to see i guess without because a lot of the people you play against you don't you don't have full information you don't know what resources they have uh you don't know how much they study you don't know how much they play you don't know actually what their results are so there's a lot of like it's quite hard to actually see everything that's going on and see what you know makes someone better or worse out and if they are better or worse you yeah know, there might, there, there might be people in your pool that you think of like you know there might be someone in your pool that you're like oh he's better than me and i'm better than that guy and maybe it's the other way around like you're playing yeah, I was, I was small sample stuff maybe the other guy's better than you and you're better than the other guy <laughs> like you don't it, really it's, know it's it's so biased also based on like short-term experience i've had multiple like study sessions with various players and then you see a hand against a player i'm like wow that guy is like the worst the worst player in the pool or then someone else is like oh he always puts me in a tough spot just because of a short-term run of sample you know he managed to get every time get into spots and obviously especially if you fold you don't see his cards so on a short-term sample everyone can have or even on a big even in a long-term sample actually if i look at online cash and if you would ask 10 players to make a top 10 there would be different players uh, may maybe they will agree on like you know certain guys always being in that list but then it yeah. varies and it's just based on short-term experience with the player a player that just can also be that his playing style kind of naturally plays good against your playing style that yeah. that probably also has something to do there's like a natural matchup there uh when you I talk mean, about yeah i was, was going to say as well that like the thing that you said that you were going through with the kind of fancy play syndrome mm -hmm. i think it's sort of easy for a lot of people to mix up playing tough with playing well like there are people that can put you in a lot of spots where it's like oh this guy check raises the river against me a lot and it makes me and like it's a tough spot and it might just be like he's torching money by not having a high enough bet frequency on the river which means he doesn't get to bluff just because he wants to find the fancy check raises exactly. so i think you get a lot of that as well where someone's like this guy's tough to play against and it's like yeah he's not winning though He's just like annoying to play against because he keeps trying to find these weird lines that you've never been in. But that, like if he's, and, if, he's not, if he's not doing it well, you're just... Yeah, that's a very good point because you see that also because sometimes 
players are very tough to play against and they they look very tough but then in the end in the end they're not winning and you see a guy who's who will never basically put you in a tough spot who plays quite straightforward and he's in the end the biggest winner you also obviously have it the flip side a guy who's very straightforward and is also the biggest loser and a guy who's very creative and aggressive and who's also the biggest winner so obviously within this there's 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 good and bad but i do think it's uh it's in, it's indeed a very interesting point thing to point out. And it can also be, let's say, you're naturally a bit more risk-averse, a bit more passive, and a bit more foldy, and you play against a guy who's over-aggressive. Like, these two playing styles will naturally mean that you will get run over uh, yeah. uh, by, by that player. I was curious what you meant when you said, obviously, there's a lot of talent in players. What, 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 what do you mean with that? What kind of talent or predisposition do you think the top have? Uh, I think maybe just, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to pinpoint or describe what it would be just like a natural intuition for how games work and like where the equilibriums land. Um, and then maybe of how easy it is to be off of that as well. Like you get some people that are very in tune with you know how many value combos there are how many bluff combos there are and how easy it is to be over or under one of those and can like really quickly switch from like mixed strategies to pure and there are some people who are like less intuitive with that and have to study the spot to get it and you know over a career that can make a big difference if say that spot comes up a similar spot comes up like like six times a year just say and one person will get it right five times after studying the first one and one person will just get it right all six because intuitively they're just like they nail it the first time you know that is a big difference in your yearly so i think there's some people like that where they're just intuitively very good at these at these things and then think different games as well you know you see a lot of people that are quite high level at other strategy games as well and uh, i would i think there's like some crossover in how your thought process should uh you know can improve if you're if you've got very good at another game um but yeah i'm not sure exactly whether there's like specific qualities other than that um and I, and I do think actually that these days, while there are certain things, I, I think that like work ethic has a big part of it and a bigger part than I first thought. I used to think that like talent was a lot more involved and I think it is still, but in actually separating people at certain levels, um, I think work ethic has a huge impact. And I think actually that's one of the main things Like when you asked me from university, what helped me in my math course i think the main thing that helped me was just the work ethic that i had to do 55 hours a week of hard thinking work and was and i'm now like willing to do hours studying where maybe i don't understand a spot and rather than just being like oh i think i know what's going on i'll be like no i'm gonna put the hard work in until i do understand what's going on whereas Maybe before university, I would just be like, oh, that's a lot of, <laughs> that's a lot of thinking. I'll just kind of like 
half understand the spot. And now let's go and check this other hand I played. Um, and I, I think that that actually has like a, yeah, just has a very big impact on, on results at every level. I think whichever stakes you play, the, you know, it's the thing you have most control over too, just finding out how to do, how to make yourself do the tough work. Cause you know, it's, it's easy to work, right? You can, you can be like, oh, I had 20 hands. I don't think I played well. I'm going to run 20 sims, which might take you an hour to set them up if you're doing it yourself. And then I'm going to let them run for two hours. So you feel like semi-productive because you're waiting for those things to run. And then you check them and you're like, oh, okay, these ones are bad. Those were mistakes. But, you know, maybe that's five hours work. But like, did you, did you learn much? <laughs> like, maybe not. Uh, so I think learning or getting yourself in habits to make yourself do good work is probably the thing that most people I think are high stakes have in common rather than there being some random, I mean, there might be other things and they're much harder to pinpoint because I can't just, you know, I, it's not like I've done like questionnaires of every high stakes player. I mean, like, oh, they all have this thing in common, but. I think one thing that actually. one thing they do have in common, I think, is is that like not just how many hours do you study, but like is your study good study? Because I've definitely worked with people and coached people where I'm like, okay, you know, tell me how you would study on your own for three hours, and you look at it and you're like, you're getting like twenty minutes of of useful stuff out of this three hours, and that's not you know, then it doesn't really matter if you're studying 20 hours a week, you're not going to compete with people who are doing 15 hours of good study. Okay. So if I understood correctly, talent obviously helps, but the less talent that are not drawing debt because with good work ethic, we can compensate. Uh, you also mentioned efficiency a couple of times and you now mentioned someone can study for three hours, but only 20 minutes was effectively now I'm sure, you know, a lot of player, uh, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast in general are very motivated for poker, especially after this conversation, they're extra motivated, you know, they might have to work ethic, but they miss the, as you said, good work. They're not efficient. How, what, what is a tip you would have for our audience to study the game more ef effectively or more efficiently, right? They have this motivation. Where should they put their time in and how should they approach it? I, I think I would guess that for a lot of people, it's kind of in plain sight where it's easy to, when you have a job like poker, to be like, I have a job I like, which means I don't have to do stuff I don't like. And like, you might not say it explicitly like that, but in your head, you're like, oh, I lucked out. I have a job that I like, which means I do stuff I like every day. When it then comes to a thing where you're like, here's a concept that I don't understand that lost me a lot of money. So I have like this negative emotional reaction to reviewing the hand because I don't want to acknowledge or think about this like bad mistake I made. And then on top of that, once you've decided to acknowledge it, you then have to do the hard work of hard study where your brain is going to be confused and you might look at a sim for an hour and still not get it and have to run more. And I think, you know, having a job or a hobby that you like doesn't mean you like every aspect of it. And 
if you want to play at a high level, there'll be parts that you don't want to do. And it's almost just like being willing to do them. Like I think a lot of people, like when I was saying the example of someone doing three hours work and only 20 minutes being good, I don't think it's, it's not like necessarily needing to do something different. Like they might have the Sims there, but maybe they're just like only doing the easy bits. They're just like, oh, like check how my hand should have played. Like, oh, it was bet, not check. Okay, got it wrong. Whereas like you have the Sim, you like there's more to learn from it. Uh, and I think a big thing that makes people not do that is just like avoidance of hard work, which I think is like a very natural human thing, right? Our brains are wired to take the easy route. Uh, you know, we just like take the take the route of least resistance, right? I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know much about that psychologically, but I'm pretty sure I have somewhere in my head that we are wired that way to just uh, take the easier option when we're given two options. So, yeah, Adam, Adam, can you, can, yeah. can we, mindset performance coach? Yes, but on, it's, it's from like an energy consumption point. The brain's trying to weigh up how much energy will be consumed by each activity. If it's an easy option, that equals less energy. If it's a hard option, that means more energy consumption um, from a survival mechanism. We don't want to expend energy on things that aren't needed, important. So we're going to choose the default easy option when given the chance. So yeah, that's uh, the main, main reason. Then yeah. what overrates the survival mechanism? Is that like a strong enough drive to get, for example, to the high rollers? For me, strong enough why? No, just, just in general, like when people face like basically their brain or the way their brain is functioned in order to save energy, in this case, it works against them trying to get to a high level. What would then override that part of the brain? Is it like, okay, strong enough why? Like I don't settle for for this. Or is it like they, they've got comfortable with doing hard stuff? I guess it's a trainable thing, right? Yeah, I'd say there's two main things. First of all, importance. If it's deemed as important for you towards your goals and meaningful, you will generally go towards it. Or interest. Interest, like curiosity. If you have some sort of thing that the brain wants to know answers, then you can, yeah, those will override that kind of survival mechanism to go for easy. Also, like Ben's talked about, trained repetition of doing the hard things. Almost use that kind of point where you see yourself going to deviate towards the easy option to go, ah, something could be happening here where I'm trying to go for the easy option. I'm going to go for the hard option because I know there's more to be gained there. So there's habitual nature of taking on the hard things, interest and importance, I think would be the three. If you get those together, most likely you'll do do the hard things most, most often. Actually, yeah. it reminds me a lot of your answer, Ben, reminds me a lot of what you met, bro, said when we were talking about solvers, I think two episodes ago. He also said when you look at, for example, I think he gave a barreling range in position, said it's very easy to ignore the low frequency combos, right? You see like, oh yeah, these gutters, you know, they're betting 80% of the time. Oh yeah, this draw, yeah, I'm doing this. And then they completely ignore the, the YOLO 5-4 anti-blocker has nothing uh, hand in there, right? But it's only in there like 20% together with the 6-4, 20%. But a lot, if you just miss all these combos, they add up to a lot in the end, right? But yeah. I think this was something that uh, that that you met, bro, said, which is, I think, very similar to the point that you're making. Yeah, and I, I think that happens a lot because people, you often review hands that you think were close. So you can completely miss something. Like if you, in a spot like that, 
maybe you, you know, check five four in a spot where it's just meant to be a low frequency bet, but you might not even flag it online because you're just like, oh, on like king king queen six, I don't barrel seven five. So like I pure checked it and I don't even flag it because it might like you're just like, oh, I just like maybe you're used to barreling equity and you didn't have equity and you're just like, oh, okay, that that doesn't need flagging. So, you know, there are some things where I, th I think this happens a lot, actually, with. Uh, you know, it's like I'm sure you've had it, too, when you coach people. You can ask them for hands. Like you can say, OK, send me some hands and they'll send you hands and it will be a lot of these big pots like, oh, this big three bet pot on the river. Like, what do you think this guy has? And it's like then if you ask them for a hand history, you'll just see stuff like that where you're like, oh, I've never seen you barrel one of these hands that are all meant to be around like 40%. Like, why have you never sent me one? And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. I, know. I, just, I just thought that was like a clear check in my head. So, you know, in that sense as well, unless you're doing the kind of hard work of looking at the whole spot, which can be tiring, you might not, you just might miss some things because you don't even know what to study. You don't even know what you're looking for. Whereas like, you know, if you're, if you're like, oh, I had the nut flush draw and top pair, like, was I meant to check raise or not? Like, you know, just looking at the sim and then just being like, oh yeah, check raise, good. Like you don't learn much, you're just like, yeah, okay, like a very clear value combo was check raising for value. And then you just like close the sim again and leave. And like, you didn't learn anything. You just like confirmed that you played the hand well. So what would be like the correct, what would be the next step? I think just looking at the, the whole spot, like just like, okay, that was a check raise. Are there any of the check raises that I wouldn't have found? Yeah, so don't play, Don't maybe you could use because actually that, that's that's interesting because I don't necessarily mark that's not maybe it's 50 50 that I mark hands that I want to review but often I mark spots that I want to review I might have even just folded my particular hand but I'm just interested in how this spot plays or like what kind of sizing sort of thing or my mind goes like hey I have this hand as a fold but what if I had a hand that's similar but you know it looks like it but what if I had a little bit better a little bit worse what do I do with those hands and those are kind of the hands that I would tag that I think what you're saying, a lot of people would miss. Whereas they're yeah, only the, tagging their specific hand. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I probably am like 50-50 of tagging specific hands, but most of the spots that I note when I'm playing live is just like, I had a hand that's not close here, but I don't know where the line is. Like, I don't know what the fringe combo is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it might just be like, oh, I'm, I know I'm like six or seven pips too high, but am I six or seven? That's interesting. Like some of the, to get back to a point that we talked about in terms of intuitive GTO, uh, as you said, some of the fringe combos, like this is also like certain hands you need to have in certain ranges in GTO world because both players know the way the ranges are set up in order to have sufficient bluffs on later street, blah, blah, blah. And this is something that, I think where GTO intuitive camp might disagree on. It's like, what do you mean? It's just a seven high. That's nothing. Just check, go for a bet, check bet or something. 
where you could like in some points actually you can make the arguments is it really necessary obviously in certain things it's just you know it has uh, very good heuristics of what of why you should do it but in other points when it's again driven purely off oh i need to add this combo because else on you know these completing cards here in the top i have insufficient bluffs which you know my value would suffer because the out of position is not calling but then the intuitive guy that's more grounded in reality says what does it matter he's still going to call he's not gonna hero fault his two pair right so do we really need to add this fringe bluff on the turn in order to have these bluffs on the river that's i guess where you know i thought it was an interesting point where you could say that the gtl model would do something simply because it knows both player strategies right um yeah i i think that's the common thing that said although i think that some of those some of those points are just like misunderstood or maybe like misrepresented by some people where you know, people are like, okay. Again, maybe it's the hard work thing of like, oh, I, I don't need to barrel, you know, seven, five on king, king, queen, six, because, you know, it's for some like reason that the solver's doing that I don't completely understand or want to understand. And it's playing against the solver, which I'm not. But a lot of those times when you get the like, you know, ace run out or something and... Mm -hmm then your hand becomes a good bluff. Those ones are often the ones that are actually under-defended by the field because the population are used to playing it to population that also aren't finding those bluffs. Mm -hmm. So sometimes like the kind of hard to find solver plays actually make more against people because of how the, like where the population is settled on. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes like the, the, the argument that the people give against that stuff is actually wrong. And maybe they're actually arguing without realizing for the counterpoint that is a very that that's indeed a very good point but it's always good indeed to to reflect on why a certain combo is for example being slow played that the intuitive player wouldn't slow play would just say well yeah you know, i have i have i have two pair the board looks a bit dry let's 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 build a pot right uh or indeed like with with the more fringe type of combos uh yeah yeah there's definitely points where the intuitive players are right and you know, but indeed, someone... and then you're uh, with adding in like some fringe combos in spots where your perceived range is going to improve a lot based on how the pool construct this range. The intuitive player will get countered because intuitively he will say, "Well, this is a spot that doesn't get bluffed because you know all the perceived bluffs complete." And then here is Ben with the five seven. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that like the, you know, sometimes people don't give both sides enough credit people are just too polarized in terms of the intuitive players are like oh these guys never deviate where it's like most of the people studying gto are aware that they're not playing a computer i think also and... that people people then are so invested in in their belief that they only i think this is maybe true for polarization in general but they throw even more weight behind it when you start to question it because and I guess the more weight you then throw behind it, the harder it becomes to admit, because then you would have to admit that you are maybe approaching something suboptimally, not only now, but have been in the last few years. So that would yeah. make agreeing or at least opening up to the idea uh, very scary from like, I guess, an ego perspective, which would only make them go in protection mode even more and start to defend their own point and only throw in more oil on the fire, right? Which usually happens with this polarizing point. If they would just stop and actually listen to each other and start to think about points that they actually agree on, then they would actually have a relevant discussion. 
Not yeah. good for the algorithm, though, as you pointed out, which I thought was a very good comment. You mentioned coaching. Uh, I was I was curious, like, let's say, for example, I join, uh, I, I, I hop on a coaching call with you. You already mentioned, like, you would probably look at, okay, well, here's three hours. How would you spend those three hours most efficiently? What are, like, the, let's say, the three first lessons you would give to a student that you think are very important? How would you spend, uh, like, the first three sessions? I mean, I... I coach like not many people these days. Uh, you know, my own work is just a lot of my hours. Uh, and then the people I do coach is just generally very person specific. So the, uh, you know, if it was from live poker, often the first session, I would just ask someone to send me before the session hands from every stage of the tournament. Uh, and I would ask them to do it in the way that we said we do it of like spot ways. So kind of, you know, I open this hand, but I'm not sure what the opens are. And like, this is where I think the line is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then some final table stuff, like approaching the final table, you know, three bed pots, like everything with some kind of conceptual thoughts of how they think spots work. And then, then I can actually go from, from there. I don't have like a kind of, first base three sessions because it's you know people come with such different ideas about poker and such different levels that people just need very different things so it's usually kind of give me as much information as you can about how you currently play and think about poker and then i will go through what i think is highest priority and highest hourly for you to start on uh and often it's just like fundamental stuff like you get a surprising amount of people who uh you know just don't actually know some pre-flop stuff or flops and it's like you know how how much do you just like go heads up high jet versus big blind and people are like oh i've never really like looked at that much or you know i've looked at the cbet frequency but nothing past that so like i don't know what happens when i get check raised enough and like you know there's a lot of stuff obviously if you get higher level people it's going to be different to that but uh, you know, the first thing is just making sure all the fundamentals are in place of like, are you playing pre-flop well? And are you playing kind of single raised heads up pots well? Um, but yeah, it would just be send me some sample of every part of a tournament. And, you know, from there, I can get an idea of how someone's playing and whether they're you know, and then you just like pick the spots where they're really torching it. If, they, if they're just like, oh, I, you know, I thought it was really close. I folded ace 10 off here and, you know, it was like a 20% continue. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to coach you on like that, that should have been a 20% continue. But, but if people are open folding a6 offsuit versus a button open of Ben Heath, <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, uh, that's probably a point where like, okay, buddy, we, we need to talk. I mean, you do see a lot of that stuff if, people are moving from cash to tournaments, you know, like you get people who move from cash to tournaments and they're like, Oh, I heard antis make you wider. So I play like one bit wider. And it's like, yeah, antis a little more no, than no, that. No rake, no antis, uh, significantly widens up the widens up the ranges. Uh, yeah. Common, um, throughout your coaching coaching career. What do you, what do you say is the most common leak you, you encounter? 
Um, honestly, I think it is just like preflop stuff. I think it's just like, because of how common all the preflop stuff are, there's, you know, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I guess because it's most common, like it's hard. There, there are other things that come up, but different people have different things. But yeah, in MTTs, it's yeah, quite is huge. It's quite easy just to be like torching off more money than you think. And it's very hard to come back from. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how good your turn strat is if you're missing 0.3 big blinds in a single hand pre-flop because you're playing way too tight or way too loose. Like, you know, you're kind of done. Unless you're playing really, really soft fields. Um, but like, if you're playing good games, uh, sorry, like tough games, and you are getting pre-flop spots massively wrong. You just like don't come back from that. And I think a surprising amount of people probably just haven't put enough time in, especially to some of the like tougher pre-flop spots. I mean, there's a lot, you know, in, in tournaments, there's a lot of pre-flop spots because, you know, in if you're playing like Zoom at 100 big blinds, you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna, it's like high rake, so I'm gonna play raise only. And, you know, you don't really need, I mean, I haven't played cash in a while, but I think like you're fine just playing a raise only strat in the like Zoom higher rate games. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, yeah, okay. There are some changes between 100, 200 and 300, but they're pretty easy to learn. And most of your time is just spent playing hundred bigs. And if you want, you can just always play hundred bigs. Tournaments is like, okay, we're going to start at 250 bigs and then in six hours time, you might have six picks. Like learn the small blind strat for everything in between. And then that's like one position. Yeah, no, it's 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 so huge. I, I wouldn't even know what to start. I think I heard was it K Rap? Yeah, K Rap in a podcast. He talked about he I think he used to always play heads up cash games. And then yeah. he suddenly had to study online uh, or tournaments. So he noticed very quickly that his study approach needed an upgrade and because in cash heads up you can be very specific like in all lines you can study really down to down to like that you were mentioning a 10 percent something he would probably have studied it in heads up cash but then yeah. if you start to do that with mtts yeah basically before you went to all spots you're dead <laughs> that's that, that that that's that doesn't really seem like a, a great strategy yeah Hi guys, Rene aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now one of these of course is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. 
And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Um, Adam, I'm curious, a player that comes to you, what are like usually the first three lessons that you have to teach them in order to perform better? And what are like the most common leaks you see students have who approach you? Yeah, I'd say it's similar to Ben in terms of I don't have a, this is the first lesson we're going to go through. It's generally solving problems as the pit players come to me with them. The most common problem across the mindset spectrum is attachment to results and players struggling with variance, struggling with downswings, struggling to show up during bad spells, struggling with emotions that come up, whether it's self-doubt, frustration, and playing, being able to show up consistently during bad spells. I think that's the most common one. Second most common one is probably around um, kind of productivity and how to get the most out of themselves consistently. I have a group of players I coach each week and the recurrent theme that comes up most weeks is around the things they weren't consistent enough with, but that's consistent with grinding, consistent with study habits, consistent with their meditation or other habits around the grinds, but finding ways to consistently show up. So those are the main problems that players kind of come in with, but yeah, a mixed bag in terms of how I approach those. And also, yeah, I try to make my coaching very one-on-one. -on -one. It's always a listening exercise. The first part of the coaching is listening to the problems, trying to figure out where they're uh, going wrong and then try to come with solutions uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. So yeah, based on, well, a segue from this is uh, your mindset, Ben. I know obviously we're a bit mindful of you at the time here, but um, for yourself, I know you've obviously built a very strong mindset for poker. So I'm curious to know how you've been able to do that. I know you reached out to Elliot Rowe, my mental game coaching. So I'm curious to know when that was and what made you reach out to Elliot to start building or working on your mindset? Uh, yeah, I... Well, when would that have been? I mean, it was, I would guess, five or six years ago. Uh, and at the time, it was actually the like for personal life stuff i was not that happy at the time and one or two of my close friends were recommending therapy and i hadn't really wanted to do it and had like looked into it at one point but then uh spoke to two people in london and they were like oh we only do it in person and i was traveling all the time so that wasn't a good option and kind of used that as an excuse to not do it and then thought someone recommended Elliot and I thought, oh, this would be a good, like in between in terms of it's not therapy, but like it's helpful with poker. And he actually, uh, because, you know, he does, uh, he's like a hypnotherapist and he does 
a lot of like if you're having issues at the table it's often from something off the table uh and we ended up i think doing most of our sessions like not about poker at all they were about personal stuff from the past like most of the sessions so that i mean he helped me an incredible amount life-wise and that obviously translates to poker in terms of being happier and more confident off the tables and getting rid of these big issues that are causing like anxiety or unhappiness make you perform better um but yeah i think for a lot of um for my actual like working at poker i didn't i i I didn't have um yeah i didn't have like someone in that sense for for most of it um i actually just started working with someone a little recently um well like this week um we had our first session um for just some like you said like habit stuff with consistency with sleep and stuff so i'll see how see how that goes i'm feeling positive about it at the moment but um yeah i think in the past it was a lot of my own stuff and like the work ethic which i think is the important part came from university and college of just being like you know kind of have the habit of putting hard work in um and then i think just talking to people like a lot of people that i play with are kind of always looking out for habits and stuff and you know so you speak to people and hear different things um but i think i think that's maybe progressed more in poker over the last five or six years of you know before it used to be just more like gambling and we just show up and play and if we're tired who cares and you know if we were drinking who cares and i think these days people are a bit more focused on the off table stuff that can make a difference um so yeah while i think i've been fine with that stuff um i think there's definitely like always room for improvement with that stuff which is you know partly why i started uh yeah looking recently for for more things to improve on that front yeah so it sounds like the sessions with elliot in particular we're looking at some of the kind of past events in your life that were creating a little bit of a sadness or negative emotions i think you mentioned earlier that a lot of the time you were playing poker to escape some of those feelings so so, so to speak and even though it wasn't necessarily affecting your performance directly maybe not in the short term there was still some underlying issues that you needed to do some work and resolve and then in the poker context it sounds like speaking with other players has been very beneficial for you in terms of right approaches dealing with variance also obviously yourself from, from a mathematic background you've talked about having like kind of good frameworks for understanding numbers variance and being able to uh, maybe emotionally deal with some of the challenges being a poker player i know uh, like one of the challenges of poker is 
you feel like you're the only person going through a lot of the problems. And I think when you speak with other players regularly, like you do yourself, you realize that ah, other players are going through very similar problems. I'm not yeah. the only person with self-doubt. I'm not the only person who has these frustrations, this anxiety. These everyone else is navigating similar problems. And then you around successful players like you are, you realize ah, there's a lot of us like good coping strategies, good habits, good ways of showing up that allow us to deal with this very volatile poker world. I think if you try and solve all those things alone, you end up like just not going crazy, but you end up like all the problems get compounded because you think like you're so isolated from stuff. But once you're speaking with players regularly, uh, whether it's a coach or whether it's just other players, you can get a lot of insights into uh, how to deal with a lot of the problems. So I'm curious to know for you in terms of habits that have been most beneficial. Work ethic obviously is a very um, kind of current go through this conversation. But in terms of habits you do regularly that allow you to perform at your best on a consistent basis, what are some of the things you you value or do? Uh, I mean, I think one of the things I changed over the last few years was uh, not no drinking on trips, which I always like had some issues with drinking when I was younger and uh, during like those times of the first years when I wasn't very happy was drinking a lot. Uh, and then even when I kind of got a hold of it a bit more, I was still we still just drink on the trips kind of to relax and just out of habit. And recently I have kind of been more aware of the effect it has on my sleep and just kind of have, uh, you know, every now and then will, if I slip up or maybe if I have a day off and I feel like it, but for the most part now I do like four days before every trip and then, uh, the whole trip until the last night i just won't have any alcohol uh and i feel like that's had quite a good effect in just you know the trips are exhausting and hard to recover anyway so not then putting that extra burden of yourself of alcohol ruining your sleep uh has been very helpful um food i think has been very helpful as well i'm much more mindful these days of like i pack I just like pack good food with me. Uh, it's hard at some of the stops because I'm vegan. Like some of the stops don't have great food options for me. So I'm kind of forced to, but it also just means I eat healthier. Like I'll take some food, you know, uh, and go a day early and like make sure I can get to a supermarket. And I, most of the time, if I can get apartments, not hotels, so I can cook. Um, and I think having that is like, because sometimes you just get these terrible food options at trips. And if you're just ending up eating badly, you just end up really sluggish and just like not feeling great by day four of a day of a, like an 11 day trip. Uh, so I think that's very helpful. Um, and then, and then I think like a warm up routine. I, I used to, one of the things I like about staying in apartments, actually, I think I used to stay in the venue a lot and had a thing where I would just like wake up 11.40, grab a coffee and be playing by 12. And you haven't really had any time to know whether you're even thinking well that day. These days I try and wake up like at least two hours before the games and then do something, either study poker a bit or just play something like chess and just be like, before I play today, <laughs> am I awake? Like, am I play? Am I thinking well? Because you can sometimes see, like sometimes you wake up you didn't sleep great. You played chess and you're like, I'm not going to play poker to if this is how I'm playing chess. Like, uh, or, you know, you wake up and you 
play poker against a trainer or you study poker and you're like barely looking at the sim and you know i think those days maybe at the start of my career looking back if i tested myself there would have been a lot of those days but now i kind of try and make sure i get to sleep by a certain time not just stay up and do things you know it's very easy like at home sometimes if you want to stay up and watch a film till 4 a.m or something it's very easy to and you don't get that punished for it the next day maybe you just don't study as much uh so like not doing that stuff on trips just being like okay, i got home it's 12 30 i need to be asleep by two to wake up at 10 and the game started 12 30 uh so i think having that more just like uh maybe maybe i mean i mean maybe it's just all around like intention of just going to the trips with the intention to perform well whereas it used to be a bit more like oh it's a holiday and like i'm gonna go and play some poker and have some fun playing poker whereas these days it's like no you know i get five months a year of these trips the games are big and i want to play well and like doing the things that you know will make you play well which is just different for every person it's not like i can you know i think there's some general stuff like not drinking a lot and trying to get sleep i don't think is going to be something that's like that argued about whether those are good for most people but you know there are some things that i do that other people like some people I know really like the hotels and find that convenient and you know i like having an apartment and being able to cook myself uh but i think all of it for certain people is just matching your intention with your aim i guess because some people you speak to it's like what's your aim in poker and they're like oh i would like to be top 50 in the world at some point and then you're like okay what are you like these trips where maybe there's five EBTs a year where you get to play the highest stakes, like, what do you do on them? And they're like, oh, I like, you know, go out with friends four of the 10 nights. And you're like, okay, this, like these two things don't really align. Uh, like something's, something's missing or has gone wrong at some point. So yeah, I think it's like different things that work for me, but I would guess the, the thing that would link it for everyone is just, you know, showing up and just making sure your actions are for the most part aligned with what you want to get out of it. I like that. Great advice. And I like the intentionality creates the kind of actions you take from that. So if the intention is to play your best poker, very quickly you start looking at lifestyle factors that impact that. You look at sleep, you look at diet, you look at warm routines because you know they're going to make you feel better and perform better on average. Uh, interesting you mentioned alcohol and sleep for yourself i've been tracking my sleep with the whoop tracker which is a wearable device there's aura ring as well very similar i've got four years of data and it's just quite black and white for me at this stage that alcohol affects personally my recovery way more than any other variable more than late night screen time anything else like almost like i think every drink uh, costs me four percent recovery on average so it compounds quite quickly and yeah. yeah for myself now i'm very mindful of when i drink if i need to perform anything cognitive i need to be sharp i need to do good gym sessions alcohol is just a no-go in those environments because like you said the intention is 
I know that it costs me so much in recovery. Am I willing to pay that price? And once you've got that kind of intentionality very clear and you know the data like from that, that alcohol does come at a cost in terms of recovery and how I feel, also anxiety and a lot of stuff for the brain. If you guys want to go deep on alcohol and the brain, there's a great podcast by Andrew Huberman. He does like three hours on alcohol and its effects on brain performance and everything. If you want to scare yourself from drinking when you're trying to perform cognitively, but I think it's good to link those together. And then it comes back quite clear. Okay, great rules for yourself now. Now you do five trips of the year, it comes with quite a clear boundary going, all right, drinking doesn't align with these trips. I can still drink with friends. I still do it other times, but on these trips, it doesn't meet the intention. And then, yeah, I think that's a really, really good thing to get alignment. Obviously, if other players are going to have a good time or to socialize, or it's one of their trips away for the year, like it was early for you and Charlie, then fair enough. Then maybe you can create different rules, but having a clear intention, then creating rules around that. So in terms of an edge your lifestyle gives you, let's say um, you're optimizing everything. Let's say you're sleeping well, you're eating well, you're feeling well rested, you're doing good warm routines. How much do you think that impacts you uh, in a positive way when you play? And do you feel like most players in the high stakes games are doing that these days? Or do you feel like there's edge to be had in the competition from uh, optimizing your own lifestyle? Uh, I, I think most most players at the high stakes are doing that to some extent just because it is tough and everyone's aware that we're playing low edge games for a lot of money so it's not like you can just like show up and not play your best uh because you know the other people are i think there's some people to less extent like some people i know just play very well when they're tired and they maybe are slightly less worried about this but uh i think people these days are very focused on like they know which environments and which mindset they play well in and people are aware that they need to put an effort into being in that mindset when they play yeah i think it's becoming more and more clear at the higher levels in particular it's very similar to sport these days where optimizing everything around performance so you personally can perform at your best in that environment um it's becoming more and more of a, a common theme from from my interpretation so for you i want to run an example let's say you're playing a day two of a 50k or 100k and you wake up in the morning and let's say you do your morning routine and you start doing some playing some chess and you realize oh my mind is just not working today. This is just going to be a tough day. What do you do in that time? So you've got an hour before you need to be at the casino. What would you do in that hour window if you had to, uh, yeah, basically your mind wasn't working that moment to get yourself ready to play? Uh, I mean, usually some exercise. Exercise generally helps me feel slightly sharper. Uh, and then, and then just some study, like study of hard spots so like i have spots noted that i got wrong or misunderstood and maybe just like review some of those so you can see okay like another time i was tired i thought about poker this way this is how it actually works like remind myself to be slower and not do the you know i think when you're very tired or not thinking that well your brain goes to the intuitive like response and it it's quite helpful sometimes to look back at previous times where you were playing from intuition and got it wrong and just remind yourself like slow down this is not it doesn't always lead to a good outcome like this is a time in the past where you did that and this was the solution uh so just kind of i mean i think that's you know a big step of it 
a big part of it is that acknowledgement. If you go and you don't know that you're not going to play well or you're, you don't realize how tired you are, it's harder. Once you've said, oh, I, like you've identified, oh, I'm not thinking that clearly today, you're at least aware and can be like, okay, make my decisions a bit slower. Uh, you know, maybe don't, if you're like, you know, maybe there's some lines sometimes you take where you're like, this is a really tough line for both people, but I think I'm going to perform slightly better in this really tough line than them. Maybe don't do that this day because maybe you won't perform slightly better in that tough line than them on your, in your B game. So I think like, you know, being aware that you're not at your best is like a big step to avoiding anything like that anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there is kind of a limit to once you realize you're not thinking that well and you have an hour, you're kind of in it. And that is, at that point, you're like, you know, that's where you would hope there would have, you know, that's what you're trying to avoid with all the preparation, right? And like what the stuff that you work on, like that's what you're trying to help people avoid is waking up and feeling that way. Um, mm -hmm. Once you're there, you're, you're a little screwed in, in some ways. But yeah, I think being aware of it is a big is a big step to avoid yeah, like said, terrible outcomes. Yeah, like you said, like obviously prevention's the, the main aim, but I'm sure everyone finds themselves in those moments where they have had a bad night's sleep for whatever reason, they do feel tired, and it's time to perform. And I like you, the whole process you went through was really, really good, because first of all, like you said, you, you did went through a process, going through, through chess originally, then some hard spots, and you realize, wait, I'm tired, and I'm not thinking very clearly. You then went to increase activation in the body, so you did exercise to get some blood flow going, get some adrenaline, so to, if your physiology is a bit feeling a bit tired, you're almost like activating yourself with exercise to get the body going. You then went to some tough spots where you normally wouldn't be think when you didn't think clearly, you made mistakes and you challenged yourself to uh, think uh, hard in those spots. Again, almost like force and activation of the mind. So uh, even though you're limited in those moments, like the process you went through was really good because you give yourself your best chance to get yourself going again, to get the body feeling better and also to uh, get the mind activated. And then you went to the casino with, okay, I did all those things. I still don't feel fully rested. I need to be very mindful of what lines I'm taking. I need to not take like super difficult spots if I can avoid them, maybe play a bit slower. And with that information, you're, you're doing lots of different things where it's, if someone didn't do that, like you said, the old you made us woke up in the morning, not realize you're tired, grab the coffee, you're playing at 12 o'clock and you haven't realized all those things that yeah, maybe could have been prevented if you yeah, prepared better. So I think even though you're limited, I think that preparation process you described there was really high level. And I think other players, yeah, mimic that, they have a lot of success as well. All right, great stuff. Ready for yourself? You got any final questions? I know I've been going quite quite a while. So any other questions you got to ask for Ben? No, um, I think I've asked most of what I wanted to ask. I mean, um, we're having a great conversation. I could continue on for hours, but they need to be respectful of uh, Ben's time as well. Uh, ben, what about you? Would you have any final things that you would like to share with our audience? I remember we always ask people like, what are the goal? And you... You mentioned that if you could help some of the players, educate some of the players, or you know, motivate some of the players listening, uh, that would be great. Any any final words for them? Anything that you would like to share? I mean, I think the I think the stuff that I feel like is most valuable, we actually we actually covered. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess to reiterate, I think it is the the work thing, like putting in the hard work is where 
is where the returns are, where, you know, maybe everyone does the first 80% of the work. And then like how much of the last 20% you do is what differentiates a lot of people. And the last 20% is the, the toughest, but it's like outsized returns. So, you know, maybe like 10 of the last 20 gets you the same as the first 80 in terms of performance versus the field. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, for me, I feel like that's the most important thing to focus on. And, and it's also the thing that we have most control over. So it feels like, you know, a good thing to focus on uh, considering how much of poker is not in our control. Going forward, what is your uh, what is your plan in in poker? Uh, for now, kind of carry on, carry on with this. I've got you know Paris in six days, and then Vietnam straight after, and then I think six weeks off before Monte Carlo. So it's just kind of the same routine, you know. Going, uh, they're kind of really putting us through it now. If Bahamas was a long, tough trip, then you know it's Paris, and then a seventeen-hour travel day straight into games two days later and then yeah and then we get some downtime before before summer so at the, at the moment for me and like the next two to th three years maybe or you know at least the next year or two the the aim is kind of just do what i'm doing at the moment I, i'm enjoying the games i'm playing and enjoying studying for them so uh yeah, there's not not like a huge aim of where to get to or what to change. Just uh, yeah. No, yeah. Well, I mean, you cannot really go higher. You cannot really go against tougher opponents. So yeah, that, that, then it's always interesting yeah, because just, I can imagine don't, a lot don't get of, crushed. Yeah, exactly. But like a lot of time, you know, in, in your career, probably also when you were lower, you look up, right? You have something to work towards, and then sometimes when you actually get there, it's like what next? But you yeah. don't really seem to have like the what next. Your happy with the life that you're currently living on a on a day-to-day -day basis that's kind of what drives you forward or, or or maybe i should rephrase this to a question what keeps what what keeps you motivated to keep on working on your game and staying on top because usually to get to the top is is sort of easier you get driven and it's nicer than staying on top uh yeah i mean i think the the what's next is not completely true like when you're saying of like you know there's nothing to look up to i think i just see it in the sense of okay like i can play against the top guys now in a year they will all be better can i play in those games right now i couldn't play in those like i can compete now in the games i'm playing at if i didn't play for a year like if I played at my current level and you just fast forward everyone and, and to how good they'll be in a year, I would probably lose in those games. And I kind of see that as the what's next. Like Interesting. It, so it, you're kind it, of motivated it, it, by the future. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be different games in the future. Everyone's working hard. It, people are improving so much year to year. Like, can I compete in those games? You know, you don't, you don't know. <laughs> Uh, just like before when, you know, you were playing 10Ks and you don't know whether you'll be able to beat 25Ks. It's like, am I still going to be able to perform 
in a year's time at the new level that people are playing at. Um, so, yeah. Reflectively speaking, like if you look at the head one year from now, what do you think is the main area that needs improving that you're going to work on in the next, in the next year or so uh, in order to be ready for the games from a year from now? I mean, I think, I don't know if it's split as much as maybe some people say in terms of, uh, again, maybe some of that is the more like polarized, you know, coaching site, YouTube stuff of like, this is the area like you need to work on. I think a lot of the time it's just like your own mistakes, you know, they're just like, go through your, I would just go through my mistakes of the trip and just be like, okay, where did I lose the most dollar EV? in terms of how much are these mistakes worth and how often did I make them and how often do they come up and fix those. And like, I don't know what they'll be in a year for me, but I don't think it's, you know, necessarily as easy as like, uh, you know, I need to study this whole area. I think people are generally like very good at poker these days and most areas are getting pretty high level and you just need to address your weakest parts. No, that makes a lot of sense, right? You study based, you basically, you already looked at the whole game tree in a certain way. You have a very strong baseline. Now it's just optimizing where apparently uh, returning mistakes keep on occurring, brush up that spot. And that's, like I said, right now it's slow, 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 slow progress. A little fix here, a little fix there, a little fix there. There is no more uh, one big, aha, revolutionary yeah. strategy that's going to give you 3% extra ROI. Yeah. All right. Well, then, if Adam, Adam, do you have any final questions? Nope. All good. Uh, great conversation. Thank you very much for your time, Ben. Really appreciate it. I think the audience are going to gain a lot from this one. So, yeah. Thanks for sharing this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you a lot, Ben, for sharing your story and your wisdom with our audience. Great conversation. Adam, what were your main takeaways from our conversation we had with Ben? The first takeaway came from early in the conversation when he was talking about his mathematics degree. And he talked about the concept of going deeper. And he talked about at university, they had to write proofs, which are kind of how to, a concept that you had to prove that was correct. And then he had to do three kind of different examples or hypothesis to prove a kind of theory. And basically the lesson he learned from that was always go deeper, don't miss details. I think he's applied this very well to poker in terms of looking at how strategies work on a deeper level and the kind of zoomed out big picture, the ability to go deeper, but also like holistically see how a, a strategy works overall. Next thing I, I think was really important from him was his ability to take risk. I think a lot of people watching this might not relate to his ability to uh, almost go for it in terms of um, a high risk tolerance, especially early in his career, going broke, not getting affected. But also I think he's learned how to use that risk tolerance in the right way. He had that Barcelona experience where he lost half his role and he realized, oh, wait a second, I can't be reckless with taking risks. I can take uh, risks when it's meaningful or when it matters, but I also can't yeah, go too far with, that, with those risks or I'm going to lose on my role. So anyone who has a kind of risk um, taking background, you need to uh, find a way to balance that so that you don't take unnecessary risks. That brings me to the next one, which is self-awareness. I was digging for a while to get to the point where he said when things were going badly, that he would take a break. And I wanted to get to some sort of thing that he did because I knew uh, 
if someone's taking risks, they put themselves in volatile situations more frequently than most people. So they need a coping mechanism to deal with things going wrong. His one was to uh, step away from what he was doing and to learn, work hard and study the game. So for him, I think it took three months away from playing one time to redo his strategy and to get better. And his kind of mindset was, if I'm not good enough now, no worries, I'll just get better. I'll just improve and get better. So he was able to take himself away and improve which takes me to the final point, which was what he ended on. And it, this is work ethic, the ability to outwork people or to put in the hard work. And he said, everyone does the first 80%. It's the last 20% that are the toughest and that most people aren't willing to do. So this comes back to the 80-20 principles where the first 80% of kind of rewards or progress gets made in the first 20% of effort. So you think of a curve, it goes up really steeply at the start. And then around the kind of 20% mark, it's, it levels off. And then from there, it's generally a very slow progression. It's like incremental returns. So uh, it's hard work, it's solver work, it's going deep on strategies. But this, when you're at a high level, this is the path where most people aren't willing to go on a consistent with and be able to put that hard work in to get those incremental improvements. And yeah, I think if you guys, anyone who listens to this conversation, you'll definitely pick up on the tone of being able to do the hard things, being able to do the things that other people aren't willing to do in terms of looking deeply at strategies and yeah, doing the hard kind of solver database analysis that gets them ahead. And I think when you're talking about the guys who can play the super high rollers like Ben, you've got to be the kind of exception who's willing to go deep where other people aren't. And yeah, I think that's definitely been a kind of principle of his. And I think maybe it's a trait of his being hardworking, but it sounds like definitely through university, he kind of, fine-tuned that skill and I, i'm almost sure through poker he's learned to develop the work ethic needed to succeed like at a higher higher level so if you guys are lacking work ethic in the short term it's definitely a trainable trait that you can get better at and yeah you can definitely learn to increase your output how about yourself Renee? what are some of the main takeaways you wrote down i mean yeah he talked about work ethic and work hard but it's mainly also working efficient right i mean in those periods where he kind of isolated himself to study he said i wasn't studying eight hours a day like that won't be efficient. So he was taking more time off. I think he mentioned he was doing cycling, uh, climbing, uh, and doing studying. So he was also like basically distancing himself from a situation. So also so he didn't burn out. I think he mentioned this as well, right? To kind of uh, control uh, control his energy and his emotions. So I think the efficiency, that was kind of my main takeaway. It's very easy to just say, ah, I work hard, I work hard, I grind hard. But is it really efficient? He also talked about uh, in terms of efficiency, you talked, okay, if you have a certain goal or if you want to, I think he mentioned if you want to be the top 50, are your habits in line with becoming to that top 50, right? So maybe, you know, just working your ass off, but not in an efficient way, or maybe doing what the rest is doing. And I think he also mentioned that, yeah, if you don't change, you will get what you had before. And it's the same as you do what everything does, you will get what everything had, everyone has. So sometimes you also have to do things differently. And I think he's a good example of that in the example that you gave. He's willing to go to, to put in that little bit extra where the majority stops, right? That's how you become uh, exceptionally good. I indeed also thought it was interesting how his relationship with risk, but I think also like his confidence in in making it in the end. I think we, we didn't touch on, on that much, but he has a very positive belief in the future. And that's also helped him be able to take more risk. I loved also like the free roll mentality that, well, you know, if I pink this, life is good. If I don't, I just make it back. So if you have the skill, that was an important thing that he mentioned. If you have the skill and if you have a high win rate at your current game, it's okay to take aggressive shots because you know you'll be able to just uh, make it back. 
And then also like the compound effect of shots going in, uh, out well. Also, if you do like some mathematical models, I'm not, I'm not a math guy, but I, I have done these kind of things. And the benefits of shot taking off, assuming that you're winning in the game. And like I said, assuming that you're winning in uh, the game that you fall back on, so you can always make it back. It's always a good idea to take aggressive shots, right? I think this is also, it helped him. The fact that people are always afraid, of course, to fail. Now he failed many times in the beginning, even went broke. And he realized that even then he was okay. So then if worst case scenario, you still feel fine, then worst case scenario is not that scary anymore. I think, I believe this is a stoic principle, right? That sometimes voluntarily they put themselves in a position where they sort of lose everything just so that they know, well, actually I lost everything. Sort of, right? They faked it maybe for a month just so that they know that even then life is still fine. Because often we worry about losing things that are actually not really that important. If we would actually take it away, yes, you know, it will not be the most pleasant experience. But, you know, in the end, we will still do fine. Okay. Uh, a little technical part that I wrote down. Pre-flop in MTT is very important. I personally play cash games, but I can imagine that uh, in MTTs, like it's, it's uh, very important. I think that was also kind of the most common leak he saw with students. Surprising, he was like, actually, it's just pre-flop stuff. So maybe it's not the most sexy stuff, and that's why people kind of skip it. Uh, but I guess for your MTT players listening out there or for cash game players who are playing more MTTs, definitely something to not neglect. And the last part that I wrote down was future EV. He mentioned that uh, in your 20s, if you have, quote, quote, nothing better to do, you know, and it doesn't make you unhappy, grind as hard as you can so that you're in a position in life later uh, that you could take time off if you would want to, right? That was a very important point, for example, that I missed in my 20s. Uh, I was always like, yeah, but I'm not going to do nothing anyway, so why the hurry? Uh, but obviously, that is the difference. Luckily, what I like, uh, what I do, I like. What I like, I do what I like to do. Uh, so it's not a problem, but let's say if any point uh, I would not want to be doing it, and let's say financially I haven't set myself up because I've grinded my ass off, uh, then I might have to continue even though I don't want to. So that would not be a great position. So I would definitely take that advice. Don't burn yourself out. Don't don't sacrifice everything. Don't live an unhappy life. Uh, find find a balance that's worked for you. All right. These were our takeaways. We have some more guests lined up for you guys in the upcoming weeks, months that we're very excited for. I thought this conversation was great. So I want to thank Bank again, Ben again. And I want to thank Adam, my co-host, for providing us with all his knowledge again today. I want to thank the audience for tuning in again. Good luck at the poker tables and I will see you guys in the next episode.